0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. In October of 2008, Johnny Altinger. A single 38-year-old Canadian man was on his way for what he hoped was gonna be a real sexy hookup with a lady named Jen he'd recently met on a dating site, plentyoffish.com. And he thought that because that's exactly what Jen had led him to believe. So on a Friday night, he put on some cologne, his best shirt, he drove to St. Albert, a neighborhood in Edmonton, Canada, to meet the attractive woman who had promised him an intimate encounter. Very unfortunately for Johnny, there was no Jen. There was only Mark Twitchell, Two weeks before Altinger's disappearance, Twitchell, a wannabe independent filmmaker, had shot a low-budget horror short film about a serial killer who impersonates a woman on an online dating site to lure victims to their gruesome deaths. And after an attempted attack on another man he'd tricked the same way a week earlier, Mark brought his sick fantasy to life by killing Johnny in the exact same location where he had filmed that short movie about a man similar to Johnny being killed by a man similar to himself life imitating one's own art in the worst of ways. Mark wrote out and filmed his murder fantasy. Then he carried out an actual murder fantasy on the same film set, both the movie and the murder, part of a new sick fantasy of his inspired by the Showtime series, Dexter. Mark was obsessed with Dexter. He felt like he understood the character of Dexter Morgan, a soft-spoken serial killer who hides in plain sight as a blood spatter analysis for the Miami PD by day and kills criminals by night. Mark wanted to be Dexter at least his own version. He even role-played as Dexter on a Facebook profile he created for the character, dropping hints about his real-life activities and updates like, Dexter is patiently waiting for his next victim. Uh, playdate, buddy. Dexter was not the first of Mark's obsessions. Previously, he had gotten really, really into Star Wars and spent thousands and thousands of dollars of both his own money and investors' money writing, directing, and producing a Star Wars fan film of his own creation that he thought would make millions, make him rich and famous, it would never be finished. And if it had been finished, it was not gonna make anyone rich or famous because Mark Twitchell is incredibly delusional very strange man, terrible screenwriter, awful director, pathological liar with delusions of grandeur who tricked his wife into thinking he had a job for months while in reality, he just drove around Edmonton trying to sell scripts no one in the actual entertainment business had any interest in. This pretender thought he was God's gift to showbiz, but in reality, he was a sad, talentless, and eventually murderous wannabe. Mark thought he was a creative genius and he came up with a plan to literally kill for his art. He believed in writing what you know And an obsession with Dexter led him to want to know how to kill so then he could write this true crime masterpiece or maybe just write a really terrible Dexter knockoff. And it would not be the first knockoff he wrote. This story, like so many others I tell here, is so insane. Mark Twitzel is what I like to call a real piece of work, real punchable douche, who I can't see you not hating early into this episode. By the end of this episode, everyone who knew Mark seemed to hate him, even his family, and that hatred so deserved. Let's dig into another true crime, super nerdy, incredibly lie filled, Dexter obsessed. Canadians are not always as polite as you think after all edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suck Master. Mark Twitchell's assistant director, Albert Fish Productions, vice president of Showbiz, associate director of Chikatilo's What's This Big Deal? Rasting Academy, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, do not go anywhere, Lucifina. Praise be to Good Boy Bojangles and glory be to Triple M. Uh, Tour, merch, charity announcements, then a big old suck. Uh, hoping I had as much fun in Cleveland on the symphony of insanity stand-up tour as I did my first night back to standup in Spokane. Holy shit. After a year and a half, I did not realize how much I missed the energy of a live show invigorating all the laughs, the smiles. I wasn't as rusty as I thought I was going to be started off with some old bits, 30 to 40 minutes of new stuff, few more old favorites. And it was a fucking blast. So thanks to everyone who came out to that show. Also grateful. Uh, many shows have uh, been selling out. I have Texas this week, all shows already sold out except for the late show. We added this Thursday, uh, August 19th in San Antonio. Uh, and uh, then it's off to Helium in Portland, August 26th through 28th, uh, recording this on August 9th. Some of those shows sold out. If you hear this and want to come, please don't wait to get tickets. Same with Philadelphia, September 9th through 11th. Funny Bone in Columbus, Ohio, September 24th and twenty five. Cobbs in San Francisco, October 8th and 9th. Uh, more dates, tickets, uh, links for all these dates at dancummins.tv. And, and last quick thing about touring, I forgot to mention last week, Uh, Another current obstacle to meet and greets after shows in many venues is this very real labor shortage. seems like every club, every restaurant is short-staffed right now, just across the country. In Spokane, I had to wait a while, uh, quite a while in the green room to get paid after the show because the poor general manager was waiting tables after helping seat people, then helping clean up the showroom after the show, which is not normal. Uh, She just cannot hire enough staff to properly run the room. Uh, Cleveland's capacity reduced a bit, not because of COVID, but because they don't have enough staff to serve all the seats. Uh, it's fucking crazy. I've never lived through a labor shortage like this before. So um, they certainly do not have the staff to help run a post-show meet and greet. They would want to uh, murder me if I wanted to uh, make them try and help me. Strange days, but at least right now, most of us are uh, you know, starting to get out and about for the first time in a long time. Did not, did not realize how much I needed to be out myself. The, the hermit, dare I say it, actually missed interacting with the public. Uh, two more quick announcements and then some show. Uh, the fourth round of the Bad Magic Street Team is live now. So go to badmagicmerch.com to get those stickers. They're free. There's only 500 sticker packs available, though. Uh, first come, first serve. Once they're gone, that's it. Only one sticker pack per person. Once you've received your stickers, all you have to do is slap them all over the place, snap a pic where you've put them, then post that pic on Instagram, Facebook, using the hashtag Bad Magic Street Team. And that's it. And then a winner will be picked at random Monday, October 18th, and we'll walk away with a $200 merch credit. Spread the suck with some stickers. And another quick reminder that our charity of the month is the Wildland. Wildland I always want to say Wildland or something. Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Uh, proud to donate $15,000 from Patreon this month, thanks in large part to our Space Lizards. Go to WFFoundation.org to learn about this great cause. Uh, you can go to the TimeSuck app to learn about this charity, so many others, all the charities we've donated to, links to each of them, how much we've donated uh, on the charities tab of the app. A lot of worthy causes. And now we head back uh, to uh, to true crime They cover a guy who really, really wanted to be a serial killer, a guy who did become a murderer uh, and a dude who was really bad at covering his tracks. Uh, Mark Twitchell is many things. And one of those things is a fucking idiot. Mark Twitchell, no Ted Bundy, no John Wayne Gacy, no Richard Ramirez, all of those guys, even Ramirez, who certainly never came across as a genius, uh, were at least in the criminal sense, much smarter than Mark Twitchell despite he uh, he thinking he was a genius. Mark did not get away with trying to kill one person and then definitely uh, killing Johnny Altinger for very long. But he still got away uh, with, uh, you know, some sloppy, poorly planned out crimes for probably longer than he should have. The plan he put together to throw police off his trail, mind-bogglingly stupid, especially for a guy who thought he was an extremely gifted storyteller. To tell Mark's story, we head back to Western Canada uh, Alberta, this time. Last time we went to Western Canada was British Columbia for Robert Picton with his pig shit written crimes. Thankfully, there will be no Mama Picton and her dirty front button today's episode. Do you remember her? I know that some of you didn't care for her. <laughs> and uh, some of your dogs really didn't care for my Mama Picton character. Mama Willie? Mama Willie? Where, where the hell there, that, Mama Willie? So straight and cut? So need to and pig shit about everything. Get Mama's goatee brush, Mama Willie. Get Mama's house boots. Uh, other than that one reference, there would be no more, uh, mama Picton. Uh, Mark Twitchell would not have the strange, filthy and terrible upbringing that Bobby Willie had For, from what we know, Mark Twitchell suffered no abuse at the hands of his middle-class, very supportive parents, maybe too supportive who actually encouraged him to pursue his love of filmmaking, even though he was not good at it. Uh, he grew up in a nice, normal house, not an animal and rodent infested farm. He was raised by actual humans, not backwoods swamp trolls. He had friends. Uh, Even if he was occasionally bullied for his big ears as a kid, uh, big ears that his parents paid to have surgically corrected, they were very supportive. Uh, So why did he try to become a serial killer? I can't say for sure, but I think truly being an empathy-lacking sociopath, definitely part of it, that for sure always helps. And I think because he truly thought he could get away with murder. He seemed to think he was better and smarter than everyone else around him all the time. And like most people who think that that I've met, he for sure was not smarter than the average bear. He thought his lack of empathy and understanding of fictional killers made him exceptionally intelligent, when in reality, it just made him a creepy weirdo. A lot of us enjoy films about or, or media about killers, right? Some of us can even relate to aspects of them. But most of us, thank God, even weirdos like me who have plenty of vengeance-filled murder fantasies, I loved watching Dexter, just uh, just like Mark Twitchell, and for sure fantasized about killing dirtbags like Dexter did. Uh, still do, in fact. But I don't actually think I would be able to easily get away with murder. I'm aware that crime in real life tends to play out very differently than crime on TV. Almost all the serial killers we talk about here do get caught in the end. We tend to focus on the very rare few who get away with it, you know, the longest, but they are the exceptions to the rule. On TV, bodies burn quickly. Police are often easily outwitted. Not so much in real life. Once the evidence starts to point to you, you don't often get to pull some kind of Hollywood escape. Dexter managed to hide in plain sight for year after year, able to lie his way out of predicament after predicament where it looked like he was for sure going to get caught because that's good TV. Building tension and releasing it, making you think like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh, shit, oh no, 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 oh God. And then you know, you think, oh, thank God. When the protagonist you know works their way out of yet another jam. In real life, when you work yourself into an, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit moment, it, it doesn't often end in, oh, thank God. It usually ends in like, ah, fuck, this is not good. That's how today's story will for sure end for Mark Twitchell, and you will be so glad it does. The Dexter killer certainly know Dexter Morgan. Let's get into it. A big reason the case of Mark Twitchell is so interesting is because he modeled himself after, of course, Dexter Morgan, you know, the serial killing blood spatter analysis uh, from the center of the Showtime series, Dexter, which ran, by the way, from 2006 to 2013. And what a great fucking show. And... If you don't know, Dexter is set to return this November for a 10-episode run called Dexter, New Blood. It's going to pick up 10 years after the season eight finale, right? You know, left off. Might have to watch the whole series over again now. And by might, I mean, definitely. I love that show. Uh, Guessing there's a decent chance you did too since you're listening to a murderous podcast episode right now, I think they uh, might actually redeem the terrible series finale that myself and many other fans of the show really did not like. Maybe they're going to make it work now, give the show a better ending better send off. I hope so. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. Uh, Mark Twitchell will be watching. Apparently his obsession remains and he has a nice flat screen TV to watch his uh, shows on in Canadian prison. If you haven't watched the show that so powerfully inspired Twitchell, Dexter Morgan played fantastically by the great Michael C. Hall, uh, is uh, he's a, he plays a man who was orphaned at the age of three when he witnessed his mother be brutally murdered with a chainsaw by a gang of drug dealers, blood gets all over him. And that experience changes him. Later, he's adopted by a Miami police detective who soon realizes that young Dexter is a psychopath, sociopath, you know, uh, but he thinks he can train Dexter to channel his psychopathic tendencies to only kill other criminals, to live by this code he instills in him. And in this way, he is successful. Dexter also has a, uh, uh, you know, he has a pretty good reason because of this code for everyone he directly hunts and kills. Some of what he does, does lead to the deaths of innocent people, but almost 100% of the time, you could argue that who he kills deserves it if you're someone who believes in the death penalty. Dexter is extremely cautious and circumspect. He wears gloves. He uses plastic wrapped kill rooms, segments the corpses, disposes of them in the Atlantic Ocean's Gulf Stream to reduce his chances of detection. Throughout it all, Dexter deadpans a lot of commentary via voiceover narration, putting viewers in the head of a serial killer, possibly helping them relate to him or to him. It's that semi relatability that makes the show Dexter work and also made it fairly controversial when it came out. Most viewers, myself for sure included, seemed to like Dexter and we wanted to see him succeed and not be caught despite him being a serial killer. This is literally what the show intended to do. Make you root for someone you feel uncomfortable rooting for. A fun, creative challenge for the show creators. And they were not the first to do it, right? There's been other famous anti-heroes like Scarface's Tony Montana, Tony uh, Fight Club's Tyler Durden, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoos, Lisbeth Salander. Unfortunately, with shows like this, every once in a while, Some fucking lunatic like Mark Twitchell watches it and thinks they really get the anti-hero and they want to become them. They forget that it's a fantasy. They can't seem to like the overwhelming majority of the rest of us just have a good old-fashioned escapist, vicarious fantasy. Enjoy the show. Have a few fantasies of who you would kill if you were Dexter, which you are not, and then you move on with your fucking life. Unfortunately for the show creators, Dexter would help inspire more than Mark Twitchell to murder in 2009, 17 year old Andrew Conley said the show inspired him to strangle his 10 year old brother. In an affidavit filed in Ohio County Court in Indiana, police said Conley confessed that he watches a show called Dexter on Showtime about a serial killer, and he stated, I feel just like him. On November 4, 2010, in Sweden, a 21 year old woman, known in the press as the Dexter Killer or the Dexter Woman, killed her 49 year old father by stabbing him in the heart. During questioning, she compared herself to Dexter and a picture of the character would appear on her phone whenever her father called. In July 2011, she was sentenced to seven years in prison. Uh, seems, seems a little light, but I don't know all the details. British uh, British teenager Stephen Miles, 17, was sentenced to 25 years in prison, October 2nd, 2014, for stabbing and dismembering his girlfriend, Elizabeth Rose Thomas, in Surrey. Uh, she was 17. Police discovered Thomas's body on January 24th, 2014, determined the cause of death was a stab wound to the back. Miles arrested on suspicious of murder. Or suspicion, excuse me, of murder. He pled guilty to the crime on September 9th, and according to Surrey police, Miles had dismembered Thomas's body following her death, wrapped up her limbs in plastic wrap, attempted to clean up the crime scene before he was found by a family member, and reported to be obsessed with the TV series Dexter. Due to all these inspired crimes, Michael C. Hall was asked if he worried about the violent impact his show seems to have had on some fans. And Hall said, all I can say to that is, it's horrifying to entertain the notion that something you did inspired that. I immediately found myself saying, well, you know, he would have found something else to inspire him, but I don't know. To be perfectly honest, it's just a troubling thing to consider. But then Hall also said he would not stop making Dexter because someone became fixated on the violence. He said, I don't think it's a primer on serial killing or it advocates the lifestyle. I would hope that people's appreciation was more than some sort of fetishization with the kill scenes. I wouldn't stop making Dexter because someone was fascinated by it only in that way. I try to tell myself that their fixated nature would have done it one way or the other. And then he added, but it seems that Dexter had something to do with it. Uh, In that sentence, he was speaking about Twitchell's crime specifically. It's horrifying. I think Mark would have probably killed had he not found Dexter. Uh, Dexter was not the first murderous anti-hero he had become obsessed with. Maybe it was just what tipped him over the edge. Uh, You know, so I don't know. Uh, Mark, Mark, at the end of the day, Mark is responsible for the murder of Johnny Altinger. Playing the media blame game for crimes of any kind uh, is a a censorship, slippery slope game I have no interest in, in playing at all. Also, I love how none of these idiots obsessed with Dexter chose to target scumbags, which was the whole fucking point of the character of Dexter. He wasn't just killing random people. He was killing criminals. Dexter Morgan went after other serial killers, pedophiles, A variety of dirtbags who, uh, you know, were hurting people and uh, and, uh, evading or had evaded the law. People who, if caught, would not get the punishment he felt they deserved. He was all about being a vigilante, not, again, just about killing random people. Uh, Twitchell and the rest of these people just conveniently skipped over that part. Uh, Why didn't Mark Twitchell go after hardened criminals? Probably because he knew they'd kick his fucking ass, uh, you know, if he tried to kill him. Not a tough man. Uh, He didn't have the size, strength, the technical fighting skill to do that. Instead, he went after lonely, physically unimposing men who were looking for women to date online back in 2008 when internet safety was not talked about as much as it would be later. Mark also chose men uh, responding to hookup messages because he thought he could put, uh, or, you know, divert any police attention away from himself by making it seem like his victims were still alive by posting messages on their social media accounts and writing emails from their accounts. And then he would quickly learn it wasn't that easy and he would get arrested just a week after his first murder. And then there's actually a funny video online of the detective, uh, you know, who helped arrest him, driving him around to try and search for Johnny's body before they found it to give closure to the family, thanking him for making his job so incredibly easy for catching him. Basically saying that he was the easiest, you know, catch he'd ever had in the history of his career because this guy was such a fucking idiot. Uh, yeah. Short time after they, uh, you know, catch Mark, uh, the police search computer, computer and they find a document titled SK confessions which detailed not only the murder and the dismemberment and disposal of the body, but a previous attempted murder that the police had no idea about, just gave it in great details. He just wrote essentially journal entries uh, uh, detailing exactly what he did. SK stood for serial killer, <laughs> um, you know, which was what Twitch wanted to be, but would never become. Oh my God. Uh, he was just hopeful when he was naming that document. SK confession starts like this. This guy's such a douche. This story is based on true events the names and events were altered slightly to protect the guilty. This is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. Like anyone just starting out in a new skill, I had a bit of trial and error in the beginning of my misadventures. Allow me to start from the beginning and I think you'll see what I mean. I don't remember the exact place and time it was that I decided to become a serial killer, but I remember the sensation that hit me when I committed to that decision. It was a rush of pure euphoria. I felt lighter, less stressed, if you will, at the freedom of the prospect. There was something about urgently exploring my dark side that greatly appealed to me, and I'm such a methodical planner and thinker. Oh, he's so smart. The very challenge itself was enticing to behold. Uh, He is not a methodical planner and thinker. You will soon see that. Uh, Holy shit. Uh, He also wrote, I just knew I was different somehow from the rest of humanity, right? Because he's so special. I feel no such emotions as empathy or sympathy toward others, for example. He's right about that. Uh, He goes on to talk about how he, uh, you know, never talked about his dark fantasies with therapists before. And then he goes on a tangent about how he's not the the one choosing the victims. Fate brings them to him. He's only following his own nature. Of course. These douchebags always got to throw a little dash of, it's not my fault. I'm just doing what I was created to do. Almost every time. They just can't take, you know, full responsibility for being a piece of shit. Uh, Twitchell addresses the sidestep, this sidestep here in his SK confessions document writing, now this does not mean I shirk responsibility for my actions. I am very obviously, as you will come to learn, deliberate, level-headed, and very much in control of my own actions. So smart. Although I won't deny that the aforementioned scenario would play well in an insanity plea. Uh, He will not be level-headed. He'll be very careless. He continues, so here I was armed with this new insight into my inner self and an exhilarating new hobby that I was seeking to undertake. I thought long and hard to come up with a system that would work for me, a method that would ensure I could have my playtime and keep from getting caught. It didn't take long before I settled on an MO. His MO is the fucking dumbest one ever. <laughs> this cocky bastard. His. I just love how he writes about how great his plan is. And you're going to see it's such a bad plan. <laughs> his cockiness continues when he talks about how unlike Dexter, he was uh, also going to kill for profit. Why? Because he's super talented and better. He's better at serial killing than Dexter. He's like Dexter 2.0. Or as he puts it, oh yes, my friend, I am in for the profit. It has always been my attitude that no hobby or venture should ever be done without expected return on investment. I love how he talks about like he's some great businessman. You will see also that he's not a good businessman. For many years, I crafted elaborate Halloween costumes, faithful screen-accurate recreations of very big blockbuster movie icons. The results of my efforts in these costumes were various first prizes in costume contests that resulted in cash payouts worth at least 40 times what I spent to make each outfit. This would be no different. There was something so funny to me about him being cocky about making a few thousand dollars winning Halloween costume contests. Like, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, cool, he won. But how competitive is costume making at the uh, going to a Halloween party in Edmonton, Canada level? Get the fuck out of here. Getting cocky about something like that is getting cocky because you uh, you won a, a, a county ping pong or yo-yo contest. I mean, that's cool for your kid. And you know, once you're an adult, it's like, okay, that's that's kind of neat, but it's not that impressive. Uh, Mark would soon figure out that being a proficient and profitable serial killer, a uh, wee bit trickier than winning local Halloween contum- costume contests. Uh, it was as if this guy actually, it, it was as if he won like one poker tournament where the only other players were his parents. And then he immediately made plans to win all of the world series of poker's main events. I mean, that's like how he, how he goes from this like winning costume contest. So, uh, well, I mean, if I could win costume contests, of course I could be a successful serial killer. <laughs> it's Like he, like, it's like he beat his, uh, little sister in a game of horse and then immediately become, becomes convinced that just a few months later, he'll be fucking dominating the NBA. So delusional. The word delusional describes Mark better than any other word to me. Uh, He's uh, he's a maniac. He's so annoying to me. But fascinating, which is why we're talking about him today. And now I'm going to tell the truth about his chronic and pathetic lies in today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. Mark Andrew Twitchell. Born on July 4th, 1979, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Let's talk a little about Edmonton, a city once nicknamed Deadmonton, according to several sources, although I never heard it called that while touring through Edmonton years ago a couple of times. Uh, one of the northernmost cities in all of North America, 300 kilometers north of Alberta's biggest city of Calgary, Edmonton is the capital of the landlocked province of Alberta. It's North America's northernmost metropolitan area with a population of more than a million. Home to about 1.5 million now, it's called or was called Edmonton for a couple reasons. Snowy winters take up about half the year, pushing everyone indoors. There's not much nightlife to speak of, or at least there didn't used to be. Uh, and since oil was discovered nearby in the 1970s and as oil prices boomed throughout, uh, uh, through the 2000s, Edmonton experienced a huge population boom in the form of young men looking for a good time, much like the Anchorage, Alaska of Robert the Butcher Baker Hansen. Uh, once the oil industry started booming, Edmonton became seedier a place to make a quick buck and have a dirty weekend. Of course, this is not to say that Edmonton is just a nightmare. In 2005, a record year for crime in Edmonton, when the city was home to roughly a million people, there were only 39 homicides. To put that in perspective, New York City during that same year, uh, when about 8 million lived there, had 537 homicides. Eight times the population, almost four times, 14 times excuse me, as many homicides. Also, Mark Twitchell would never have anything to do with Edmonton's seedy side on any level. He is easily the nerdiest killer we've ever looked into. And the city of Edmonton did not play into his crimes at all. He could have done the same thing anywhere. From an early age, Mark showed a passion for costume making, performance, and fantasy. His parents both encouraged his, uh, both of them encouraged his creative pursuits. His mother, Mary, career graphic artist. So, you know, she was a talented creative person. His father, Norman, or the Normster, as Mark would call him, a maintenance worker for one of the city's downtown office towers. You know, steady job good benefits. Both Mary and the Normster had grown up on Alberta's fa- or on Alberta farms outside of Edmonton, got married in their twenties. By the time Mark would be arrested, they would have been married for over three decades. And I have to imagine they regretted having Mark for a son for at least, I don't know, two of those decades. Uh, Mark has one sibling, a sister, Susan, who's four years younger than him, tall, active in kickboxing, skiing and mountain climbing growing up. Uh, very smart. The Twitchell family used to watch Star Trek next generation after dinner which led to Mark calling his sister Q as a nod to one of the show's omnipotent genius characters. No surprise to the family when she decided to pursue a successful career in engineering. The family lived in a 1950s single-story home on the counter or uh, the on the edge of the Killarney suburb across the street from a nearby Catholic school where Mark and his sister went to school. So they had, you know, very like nice kind of middle-class lives. for The most part, Mark seemed like an ordinary kid uh, if a bit picked on for his nerdiness, you know, like many kids. Before blossoming into a socially awkward, super annoying dude, he was a socially awkward, super annoying Catholic schoolboy with reddish brown hair, big glasses, and ears that stuck out. It infuriated Mark that his classmates mocked his appearance instead of adoring him. He also seemed to think he was a fan-fucking-tastic, you know, human being, could not understand why others did not recognize his greatness immediately. He always had a very healthy ego that way. He convinced his parents to uh, get him corrective surgery, to pin his ears back so his classmates would take him more seriously and respect him but then after the operation, still mocked because, uh, you know, uh, the operation didn't take care of him being an annoying little fuck. It was never about the ears. It was always about what lay in between those ears. A social outcast for the majority of his early childhood, he often related, uh, you know, retreated to his parents' house where he and a friend, possibly his only friend, would fool around with the video camera and make up stories. His first so-called film was a compilation of various skits uh, and short films that he and his little buddy did, you know, most of which used established concepts Uh, from existing shows, change them slightly to make them his own like parodies. That's something he'll never outgrow. He will consider himself to be a creative genius, but never seems to have an original idea. Uh, One of his early ideas was a parody movie trailer for the comic book, you know, uh, Judge Dredd. uh, Twitchell turned him into Judge Fred of the Flintstones. This is probably the best thing he ever did as a kid. I am the law, Judge Fred shouted into the video. Yabba-dabba-doo. Later skits became more violent as he grew up a parody of Wheel of Fortune, uh, became Wheel of Torture contestants spinning the wheel to determine which painful scenario they'd be subjected to next. That might actually be his best project. Both of these projects are more creative than his later projects. And I got to say right now, young Twitchell uh, reminds me of a young someone, an often angry nerd with dark comedic leanings. Someone who grew up watching a lot of sci-fi who also got bullied a bit. Someone who made jokes about torturing others. He reminds me of my dad, JK. Reminds me of me. Ah, hi caramba. Uh, Twitchell's friends saw their little movies as a fun pastime, but to Twitchell, their filmmaking was serious business. He was now and forever a filmmaker, at least in his mind. He was a creative force to be reckoned with. He thought he was so creative, he invented his own terminology to describe his powerful creative force. When Twitchell felt inspiration strike, he described it like a rush of blood to the head, something he began calling his ICG, internal creative genius. He actually told other people about this. When it hit, he had to be left alone. He had to keep writing, filming, drawing, because his mind was flooded with so many new great ideas. Or more accurately, his mind was flooded with other people's ideas he convinced himself were his own. Uh, Twitchell began writing so frequently that his friends and classmates thought he was uh, obsessive compulsive. If only he would have been able to figure out how to write actually good shit. He might be famous right now for very different reasons. Uh, He once handed a girl who sat behind him in high school an expansive 200-page report (laughs) that no one asked him to write that he wrote on the Star Wars universe, expecting her to actually read it. And he was so just heartbroken when she wouldn't read his 200-page star Wars universe report. So maybe he wasn't actually that much like me. (laughs) I was never that nerdy. I drew weird monsters and, uh, like he-man like action figure dudes in class all throughout grade school That you know, some girls were curious about and then, you know, would come check out and were generally weirded out by, uh, I didn't draw them for the girls expecting them to like them. I certainly didn't expect, uh, any girls or just anyone at all to read a 200 page report on fucking anything. So weird. Also in high school, Twitchell started developing a rebellious streak. He often uh, lied, stole money from his mother's purse. Uh, He'd just buy like, you know, junk food, just little trivial shit. He was arrested twice for shoplifting from a grocery store, but managed to avoid having a criminal record because of the court's alternative measures program for first-time offenders. Man, I stole a lot growing up and I lied to cover my tracks. Now I'm worried again. Maybe we're the same person growing up. Uh, Soon, 19-year-old Mark would find his first anti-hero in the form of Anakin Skywalker, the first one he'd become really obsessed with. Episode one. The Phantom Menace, released on May 19th, 1999. Mark sees it right away and then goes back to see it several more times. He loves it, Uh, which is interesting because the first prequel to the original Star Wars trilogy is is generally considered the weakest film in the Star Wars universe by many, if not most fans, right? Jar Jar Binks' uh, big swing and a miss by creative genius George Lucas. Uh, Mark, uh, he loved it because he loved the origin story of Anakin Skywalker becoming Darth Vader. It's so easy for someone on the outside looking in to judge why Anakin's choices were stupid, but it's different when you're the one in that position. Mark wrote on theforce.net, a website hosting the popular online message boards used by most dedicated Star Wars fans around the world. Darth Vader was a great man, just misunderstood. He had to give in to the power of the dark side. Sith Lord Senator Palpatine promised him he'd keep his wife Padme from dying. She wasn't even sick. He, he he just had some, you know, some nightmares that she might die in childbirth. And so naturally Vader partnered with the man he knew was evil and massacred the Jedis who trained and mentored him. Of course he killed pretty much all of his friends to maybe save his wife who didn't need saving. I mean, what would you do? He did what a good, misunderstood guy does. I get it. Uh, Mark penned long and plentiful posts about Star Wars through the years uh, on the same website under multiple accounts. Of course he did. This is the guy who wrote a 200-page fiction novel for some girl at school. Uh, one, the, Force Net, or the Force.net account is just not enough for a socially well-adjusted person. Uh, Mark watched each prequel film at least half a dozen times while they were still in the theaters and was moved to tears watching them. He especially would cry during the Anakin scenes. This guy's a fucking psychopath. Uh, when the message boards began discussing the pure evilness of Anakin after episode three, released in 2005... Uh, where in one scene, he slaughters innocent children in a fit of rage. Twitchell defends him, writing, I know, isn't it sweet? The pure calculated precision of it. It's admirable how he manages to have the stomach for it. I wonder what was going through his mind. In this scene from the third prequel, Revenge of the Sith, Anakin murders a bunch of kids called younglings, force-sensitive kids recruited by the Jedi Order from various species across the galaxy. Mark posting it's admirable about the slaughter of innocent kids who Anakin was supposed to protect, actually. Kids who thought when they first saw Anakin that he had come to protect him. And Mark's like, fuck yeah, nice. Maybe a bit of a red flag there. In these chat rooms, Mark is posting multiple times in the same thread under different accounts, under different names. He had accounts titled Grinning Fisto, the Achilles of Edmonton, the Psycho Jedi. And he thought by doing this, by manipulating other chat users, that he was smarter than them. People who do shit like this are so annoying. People who confuse being smart or clever with just being really obnoxious or pathetic. You're not pulling one over on other people online because you're smarter. People just don't expect someone to be so lame and have so much free time. They're willing to waste hours pretending to be three, four, five different people on the same thread over something very inconsequential. As Star Wars episode one, episode one The Phantom Menace premiered in Canada. Some friends of Mark's decided to turn the long queue into a charity fundraiser, calling it stand it was decided the proceeds would go to the Children's Wish Foundation of Canada. Twitchell took part in it, starting to seem like maybe sometimes he was a good dude, right? Not really. In the stand thon Mark auctioned some illustrations claiming they were original conceptual drawings made by the production crew of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. People were blown away. How cool that he, A, got a hold of these, and B, was generous enough to auction them off for charity. And then later, people got really pissed off when they realized they were all forged. He didn't care about the charity. He just wanted to be the big hero. Looks They look cool so he could be adored by other nerds. Uh, when confronted about this forgery, Twitchell refused to admit it. Uh, also at the end of the 90s, Twitchell was studying for a degree in radio and television production at Edmonton's Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, NAIT. Uh, think of Canadian ITT. He he graduated from the program in 99, just shy of his 20th birthday. Most of his fellow students who were interviewed after his later murder arrest, murder arrest uh, will remember him being a weird loner. However, he did have a core group of friends. One among them was Drew Kenworthy. According to Kenworthy, Twitchell was a good guy, but just not trustworthy. So maybe not a good guy. Maybe like a a not good guy, but maybe not the worst guy. While doing joint projects in school, Kenworthy said that Twitchell very often failed to do his part. And then instead of owning up to it, he would invariably make wild stories up, uh, make crazy lies up, excuses. Uh, He lied unnecessarily, continually, and not convincingly, according to Kenworthy. So was he a good guy? I feel like Kenworthy's good guy standards are pretty low. Another person from this time period who remembers Mark lying continuously and needlessly was Tracy Higgins. Tracy was a few years older than Mark. And this this line is the huge theme in this episode. Tracy was a few years older than Mark, was enrolled in the same radio and television production program. The two quickly dove into a hot and heavy relationship, possibly Mark's first sexual relationship. And then it didn't take Tracy long to realize that her new boyfriend was so full of shit that he just lied. And he lied constantly and about things that didn't need to be lied about. He lied about his age. Uh, He lied about uh, inconsequential details regarding his family's background. He lied like he just enjoyed lying, like he preferred it to telling the truth. After a year of this, I don't know why she put up with it that long, uh, she ends the relationship. She felt like she just couldn't be with somebody she couldn't trust. And Mark is heartbroken. I wonder if Mark lied because he thought he was just smarter than everyone around him and they wouldn't catch him. He was never diagnosed with having some kind of mental illness that I'm aware of, never labeled as someone uh, having a disorder like a, Anti-social personality disorder, which compulsive line is you know one of the hallmarks of that. So why do it? I wonder if he just thought he could get away with it because everyone else is so stupid they just won't figure it out. I wonder. And I wonder if he just got off on messing around with the, the tiny minds around him. Speculating here, but it feels right. Uh, in 2000, after graduating with his radio and TV degree, he gets himself a sales job and starts calling himself Logan, as if this is a nickname he has had for many years. Uh, is it a nickname? If you've given it to yourself, it shouldn't be because he did give this to himself. Logan is a reference to Wolverine, the member of the X-Men whose alter ego is James Logan Howlett. This guy's such a tool. Holy <laughs> oh, shit. Just showing up, pretending to be Logan from, from fucking X-Men. Name's Logan, you know, like Wolverine. Not sure why people started calling me that, you know, might be the muscles, might be the mysterious hero, kind of badass vibes, you know, I just people say, I, a lot of people say I give off. All I know is I I just gave up on my real name because so many people just started saying stuff all the time. Like, hey, can I call you Logan? You remind me so much of Wolverine. It's like the character must be based off of you since you are like a real life Wolverine, only cooler. I want to give Twitchell a different nickname. Uh, How about Bitchell? I feel like Bitchell suits this tool more than Logan. Uh, 2001, Bitchell meets an American girl not named in any sources we could find. Uh, he quickly marries her before spending any real time with her. Not enough time for her to figure out what a huge douche she is. And he moves to the American Midwest, where they then live in Iowa and Illinois, spending, according to Mark, most of their time in Davenport. Mark hopes the move will be an opportunity for him to gain an American work visa while getting out of the snowy city in which he'd spent his entire life. He hopes he can launch his big film career in the US, but he has no clue to go uh, as far as how to go about trying to do that. Or just doesn't have the balls to really try, or the talent. He ends up spending most of his time in the US dicking around online. Coming up with a bunch of fake profiles for a variety of sites, you know, posting under various accounts labeled as uh, Satan, Jesus, random women's names. He's he's just your basic internet troll. Mark's new wife will watch him pretend to be a girl online chatting with random men just to mess with their heads. He could trick him because he's so smart. He thought it was a big laugh. I don't think his wife agreed. Uh, That it was that funny. At least he didn't think it was funny for long. Less than four years after getting married by the summer of 2005, they're divorced. Mark is back in Edmonton, now trying to launch his film career back in Alberta. Uh, Bitchel gets busy putting together a fan film, telling everyone that he has decided to return to Edmonton, not because his wife doesn't want him in America anymore, but because the Star Wars fan community is so strong in Edmonton that it's going to complete this, help him complete this ambitious project. Uh Uh-huh, that sounds logical. Everybody knows that if you really want to, you know, find the fucking diehard Star Wars fans, you get your ass to Edmonton. That's why Disney decided not to create a huge Star Wars themed uh, area in in, uh, uh, Anaheim or Orlando, but instead that's why they built their new Star Wars theme park in Edmonton where the real fans are, or they didn't do that. This is crazy. Uh, Bitchel posts about his fan film concept on theforce.net and a young man named Joss, had no idea how to say his last name and I can't find in interviews, Hanatiak. Uh, read about it and was excited at the prospect of helping produce Star Wars Secrets of the Rebellion. Joss would become, uh, Joss would become Mark's friend and unknowingly to Joss, years later, he'd become Mark's accomplice. And Joss will not come across like the sharpest knife in the drawer uh, for the for the rest of the timeline. An old post of Mark's uh, still archived on theforce.net describes Mark's, vi- Mark's vision for his film. He says, uh, this film is set a few days before ANH, which is A New Hope, That's the original film that is now the fourth of the nine movies in the franchise. Uh, Mark imagined his film doing a better job of linking the prequel trilogy with the original trilogy than George fucking Lucas. And anyway, he writes this film is set a few days before ANH and follows the true format of a star Wars film to the letter. We incorporate droids, the Jedi element good versus evil in a very classic way with real character development and a heartfelt approach. In fact, the whole film is going after an original trilogy feel in general. Bringing back the original most loved characters of that saga in a very tasteful way is one way we achieve this. Since we follow true format, there are two or three things going on at a time that all interweave back and forth and then collide at the end while still having something to do with one another. We tell the story of how Han Solo set the Kessel Run record, how he names his ship as well as revealing why he had to ditch his cargo. We also have a very artfully crafted way of showing how he won the Falcon from Lando in a game of Sabak in a flashback sequence that we had to make sure wouldn't come off cheesy or contrived. This fucking douche. Oh my God, just the way he talks about himself. Hey everyone, it's Logan. You know, like Wolverine. Just wanted to let you know, I'm not going to take some cheesy or contrived, you know, approach to my film. It's going to be a very classic tasteful Star Wars movie that will be better than anything George Lucas has done since 1983. No big deal. My internal creative genius, ICG, has been firing on all cylinders lately, so watch out. I have more ICGs flowing through my veins than the forest moon of Endor has Ewoks. (laughs) Uh, Bitchel, of course, would not fully deliver on his lofty promise. Uh, Mark planned to shoot the feature-length film at his old college, NAIT, in front of a studio green screen. And he did shoot some of it there. He'd spend $60,000, most of it other people's money, hoping this would be a big calling card for the industry. Uh, Actually, all of it, other people's money, basically the 60, it was $60,000 plus a tiny bit of his own money. Uh, He created top-notch costumes, he did do that. uh, And then some not so top-notch computer-generated special effects. Uh, There were plenty of lightsabers and not a lot else from what I understand reading about it. Uh, His new friend, Joss, would work uh, hundreds of hours on this. Secrets of the Rebellion, Uh, filmed here and there over two years. In 2006 and 2007, actors and performers from across Canada and the U.S., no big names, uh, actually flew to Edmonton to star in this movie. News of the project did spread among sci-fi fans in various internet chat rooms. Of course it did. Bitchel probably had a fucking hundred different accounts. He's probably spending six hours a day pretending to be fans posting about his new movie. Uh, The biggest name he got to appear in this project was Jeremy Bullock, the actor who did play Boba Fett in the original Star Wars trilogy. He convinced Bullock to make a brief cameo in this fan film. And no offense to Bullock, longtime actor who died in 2020 at the age of 75, he was not a big acting name. Boba Fett is a big name, but you never see the man behind the mask, right? Boba Fett's a badass character, but Star Wars nerds, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, Bullock's portrayal in the original trilogy, not some acting masterpiece at all. His best stunt, from what I can tell, is just when he fell into the sandpit. The Great Pit of Carcoon, uh quickly rolling to the mouth of the Sarlacc and just being eaten. And it was just a basic roll down the sand. Uh, and Boba Fett was Bullock's most notable career role. Not trying to disparage Bullock, just saying this to demonstrate what Mark's film was. It was not some star-studded major production by any stretch of the imagination. It was never finished and released. Uh, you can find some behind-the-scenes pictures and a bit of behind-the-scenes video footage online. And it just comes across like a very so-so student film that a small crew, you know, worked hard on, but maybe weren't destined to become actual players in the, in the business. Uh, a shooting wrapped up in the late, uh, late summer, 2007. Bitchel uh, declares how significant an achievement it had been. It's going to be a surreal experience bringing these long awaited, incredible stories to the screen. I'm blown away that it gets to be me to bring it to the world. He writes on his blog. It feels like destiny. Well, I was destined to never be seen by anyone. Uh, about six months before wrapping the filming up back on January 13th, 2007, Bitchel gets married again. This time we do know her name, at least her first name. He marries a woman named Jess, a college graduate with some type of steady government job. Uh, the two had met only months before in 2006 on plentyoffish.com. Mark would later claim he'd actually forgotten about their date and was on his way to the movies when Jess called, wondering why he wasn't at the restaurant. <laughs> he was such a big deal. I mean, Wolverine, lo- hello, Logan, <laughs> come on. He probably had like 75 dates that day and he forgot one of them. Classic bitchle. uh After the shaky start, uh, Mark falls in love. Jess is smart, three years older than him. She's 30, he's 27. She's a detail-oriented uh, oriented thinker where he was a big picture guy. At least that's what he described himself as. On a stroll to the park only a few months after they met, Mark surprised Jess by pulling out a ring and she said yes. She moved into his rented townhouse and to make room, his roommate, Jason Fritz, moved out. They had a very small wedding with Mark's sister, Susan, serving as the best man since he didn't seem to have very many friends. And then their honeymoon took them to Costa Rica. Not long after that, in the spring of 2007, Jess would get pregnant and their daughter would be born just after their first anniversary. And sadly for his new wife and daughter, Mark Twitchell, professional liar, was not the family man he portrayed himself to be, uh, would not be around as a free man for very long after his child's birth. Early in his marriage with Jess, Mark's first love, Edmonton ex-girlfriend from his old film school, Tracy Higgins, finds her way back into his life through Facebook and they meet up and they make out. Ah man, her dating life must have not been going fantastically back in 2007. If she was like, I wonder what that pathological liar I used to date is up to. That dude who pretty much lied every time he opened his mouth. I really miss that guy. Uh, Mark regretted stepping out on his wife, confessed to Jess, who was devastated, not only because of the cheating, but because, you know, they're a couple months pregnant. On Halloween 2007, things turn around a bit for Bitchel. Mark spends $300 and countless hours perfecting a costume of Bumblebee from the Transformers franchise as a soon-to-be father does. How is he supposed to provide for his child by not spending countless hours making a Transformers costume? (laughs) He attends two Halloween parties, accompanied by his wife, who's six months pregnant, and he does win, you know, to his credit, both costume contests. Fuck yeah. He then sells a Harley Davidson he won in one of the contests and sells the costume itself, and he does net a profit of $16,000. He feels on top of the world. And look, uh, it is cool that he won some contests. I acknowledged that earlier. I've certainly never won anything where the top prize was as valuable as a Harley. Actually, I don't think I've ever won any uh, contest. Uh, I did win some some cakewalks as a kid. I don't know if that counts, probably not. Uh, cool, but but Bitchell acting like, uh, you know, he's acting like he's Jeff fucking Bezos now after winning these. Like he's ready to take over Edmonton. I just picture him making a reservation at the finest steakhouse in town uh, and making that reservation under Mark Twitchell, double grand costume champion, and then insisting they announce him that way. Mark Twitchell? Uh, party of two, your table is ready. Uh, um, excuse me. Uh, I believe I made the reservation under a slightly different title. Oh, uh, Mark Mark Twitchell, double grand costume champion. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Uh, would you mind starting over and just calling for me again by that full title? Uh, okay, sure, buddy. Mark Twitchell, double grand costume champion. Table for two. Someone kill me. Uh, a couple weeks after winning his costume fortune, a friend calls Mark to recommend a new TV show. Dexter. And at first, Bitchell's not interested. He's fucking busy. He's making a sample movie trailer for another film project of his called Day Players, hoping it will attract investors. Mark describes Day Players as a buddy comedy. He wrote about two guys who work as extras, aka Day Players, on a variety of films and TV shows. Day Players stars Nathan Martin and Stephen Kepler playing Craig and Ronnie, talented actors trying to make it in the industry. Stephen is actually now a morning radio host on Easy Rock, Kelowna, and Nathan works as an editor for the Edmonton Sun-Journal you're curious, uh, now defunct media company, express entertainment, made a promo that is on the express director, YouTube channel day players, promo trailer, and it is fucking terrible. It is lit horribly shot on one camera that seems to be poorly held. It's not bad enough uh, to be so bad. It's good. It's certainly not good enough to attract investors. Uh, it's the worst thing I think a creative project can be. It's, it's boring. Let's, let's listen to, uh, two minutes and 40 seconds of glory right now. Okay, people, settle down. We're rolling in five minutes. Just like short breaths first. Sure. You're not going to Lamas, right? Oh, okay. Just, it's just simple short breaths because you want to keep yourself. <sighs> so the camera's on these two guys sitting at a table, eating a meal, and they're just like, you know, background extras in a scene. And obviously they're, you know, taking it way too seriously and just getting way too into it. <sighs> Nose jack. Nose jacket. You got anything? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Good. Dry skin, Every year, um, the film industry yeah, employs thousands of acres. Says uh, on screen. Little, sniper? No. Good? Go of right. so because good. Because they're going to they like One guy's I'm looking good. up the other you're guy's the nose too. for boogers. both man. men. Now they're drinking water and swishing it around their, their mouth. Get the ch- you got to stretch. Uh, We're going to be sitting here for hours. Uh, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck? If a woodchuck could chuck wood? Dang it, can I beat you again. Ha! The <clears> chemistry these guys good? have. Great. What's what's our backstory for this? Some actors get um, speaking roles. It says on screen. I like it. Okay, like it. that's okay. good. I don't care okay. what. Are you feeling okay. good? I'm feeling good. Some may you even become stars. I, I can't I'm get bad. any more warmer than this. So we're calm now. Calm. 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 Energy down. Focused but down. Uh huh. Okay, they're slapping each other's hands away from I'm their food. Excited. You're excited. I'm ready. You're ready. My lines have been rehearsed. Okay, that's good. Roll camera. All they need is one breakout roll. Action. So. Mm Hmm. I talked to Amy this morning. Man? What's, uh. What's Amy up to lately? I don't know. I was gonna ask you the same question. Why would I know what Amy was up to at all? Weird. She. Well, she told me what you were up to. Um. I, I, I can't remember. I don't know why she would know that. I can't remember the last time I uh, saw Amy. It was It was definitely not last night. You didn't That's, see uh, her last night? Uh-oh. No. Not at your apartment? Where's this lean? Well, I mean, you know what? Yes. Oh. Yeah, you know what? Oh. Yeah, I, and I was... I, well, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Amy is my girl. Oh, man. You broke up with her, jackass. Gosh dang. So? That doesn't give you the right to. Uh, and, and now the camera pulls back. And now it's revealed that they're, you know, they're in the background. And now this is Mark Twitchell speaking right here, playing the director. Guys, can you keep it down back there? We're trying to keep the audio clean for the take. I don't mm-hmm. want to have to do this 16 times. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. And it says, right. this story is not they about say. them. Okay. Ooh, big director Ooh. Guy. Ooh. Guys, you're talking I'm shit about see- the director day players i felt it yeah, i was there yeah. my heart's still pumping i totally caught you oh yeah coming soon <laughs> nope and here listen is that the worst thing ever no it's not but jesus christ i mean this is something he worked on for months to and, and then create like this promo you know video like, that was an improv between those actors. That was actually, like, you know, a script that, that Twitchell had scrutinized for fucking, like, like apparently around, like, two months. Get the fuck out. That's the best you could come up with? Is this this long, slow build to revealing, like, they're in the background? And, like, he thought this was going to make him millions. Oh, boy. Uh, back to Dexter. In late two thousand, early 2000s, 2000, uh, 2008, a friend gives Mark a DVD with all 12 episodes of the first season. Uh, Twitchell gives in, you know, he ends up watching it and then he loves it. Watches all 12 episodes in four days. Uh, season two, uh, is finished airing that December. Mitchell watched it as well. Then bought the Dexter series of novels by Jeff Lindsay, which inspired the TV series. Uh, he reads about how Dexter Morgan, uh, you know, wore a silk mask to hide his identity from victims. He makes mental notes in January, 2008, Twitchell becomes a father. He and Jess settle on the name, Chloe. Jess lets her husband pick one of their daughter's middle names. Even when she learns that his choice is taken from the expanded Star Wars universe, Jaina, daughter of Han Solo and Princess Leia. Chloe Jaina Twitchell, which does sound very nice, actually. Better than, like, you know, Chloe Anakin or Chloe Vader. Uh, Despite not getting any funding after making a little teaser for Day Players that we just listened to, crazy. Mark goes forward with this project, spends a lot of April and May of 2008 working on, you know, a script for the actual pilot episode. Uh, And now, to make this even worse, this Day Players thing I played for you, did I mention how similar to the British sitcom Extras starring Ricky Gervais, Day Players Is. And by similar, similar, I mean, he just blatantly fucking ripped it off. Extras has a two-season run that finished airing in 2005, wrapped up on December 27th, 2007. Mark's promo for Day Players uploaded to YouTube December 20th, 2007, right? Just one week before. Not a coincidence. He was more than inspired by Extras. He recycled almost the exact same idea, right down to Gervais' style of fast-talking comedy, which he doesn't pull off well there. Uh, you know, doesn't execute it nearly as well. Dude specializes in poor imitations. He tried to make a poor imitation of a Star Wars movie. No one fucking cared about it. He tries to make a poor imitation of Extras and soon he will make a poor imitation of Dexter. Uh, Extras follows the lives of Andy Millman, his platonic friend, Maggie Jacobs, and Andy's substandard agent and part-time retail employee, Darren Lamb, as Millman muddles through life as an anonymous background performer who eventually finds success as a B sitcom star. So Mark took that idea and then, you know, just made it less interesting and funny. Uh, Also, after filming the promo piece and becoming obsessed with Dexter, he starts to infuse a bunch of Dexter-type violence into this buddy comedy in the script for the full pilot. Uh, He makes a lot of references to slit throats, duct tape, being restrained to a chair. Like, whatever he's into just bleeds into whatever he's writing. In an early scene, a woman complains about a man who had deceived her with a fake online dating profile. I wish I could find a copy of the script online, but according to one source who claims to have read it, it is filled with corny, generic, really not funny jokes. And then Dexter type violent references. Maybe it goes, you know, something like this, right? Like the killer, there's a scene where the killer has his victim tied down in the kill room uh, that looks exactly like Dexter Morgan's kill room. And then the killer is saying, looks like you just got catfished, eh? And the victim's like, please, just let me go. Uh, please, I won't tell anyone. And the killer's like, no can do, buddy. This cat scratches. Stab, stab, stab. And then Mark's killer character breaks the fourth wall, speaks directly into the camera. Oh, sorry, eh? Didn't see you there. Names, uh, Mexter Dorgan. No one at the Calgary PD, where I work as a crime scene specialist blood person, has any idea who I really am. They don't know about my dark passenger, eh? Not even my sister, uh, Dib Dorgan. Or my girlfriend, Bita Rennett. Because like the guy who wrote this awesome, so cool short that will become a blockbuster of Hollywood franchise, I'm a genius, eh? Uh, Mark and his old production buddy, Joss, that sucker from the Star Wars fan fiction project, they pitched this concept to several groups of investors and they predict it will make 33.9, <laughs> I love that he put the point nine. Thirty-three $33.9 million within the first year of release. These fucking idiots. I love that they were like, apparently they once th- thought about going like 34 and that felt like too much. Like, what if we just say it's going to be like $34 million? God, ah, just, I mean, that's a big, that's a big promise. Let's scale it back. Let's scale it back. You know how like places, I bet Mark was the one who came up with that. You know, like, oh, a genius idea. My ICGs are fucking firing right now. Um, you know how like places, instead of charging $10, we'll charge $9.99. <laughs> that's what we do for our movie and our series. It's not going to make $34 million. It's going to make $33.9 million. It's a steal of a deal, which doesn't make any sense. Oh, boy. Uh, they don't attract They don't attract any outside investors. So now they look towards family. And sadly, they do talk some relatives into burning some money. Uh, Joss's parents, oh, fuck, hand over $30,000 in three installments. And then Bitchel's brother-in-law also hands over $30,000. So now they have $60,000 for the shitty ideas. Uh, also, unbeknownst to his wife, Jess, who encourages Mark to keep his day job, probably because she knew all too well that he was not talented enough to make it as a filmmaker, Mark does not keep his day job and quit. And he quits, right? He has a $60,000 now. He knows he's going to make, you know, at least just under $34 million. You know, that's just, at least, I mean, there's so much money's coming in uh, between Star Wars and this project. He's going to be so fucking rich. And speaking of Star Wars in early 2008, Bitchell does a weird flex about a project that has gone nowhere on the message boards of theforce.net. And I will share his flex post right after today's sponsor break. Dot com slash timesuck. You know what's one of the best things to bring with you wherever you go? Raycons every earbuds. Raycons offer amazing quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. There are tens of thousands of five-star reviews speak to that. Your Raycons can go with you everywhere so you can listen at any time. With eight hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life, you don't have to worry about whether they're up for the task. Even though I'm not currently touring, I still travel a fair amount. And I love how small the case is. So easy to throw them in my jacket pocket like I did when Lindsay and I took my grandma to New Orleans. I used them on the plane to help fall asleep to some Nathaniel Rateliff and then Enola, use them at the gym to get pumped up for a quick workout to some Chevelle. Perfect for both places. I was able to easily use noise isolation on the plane to block out flight noises and then switch to awareness mode at the gym so I'm not too lost in my own world and get in the way of others' workouts. Go to buyraycon.com slash Today day to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash timesuck. Buyraycon.com slash timesuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, What's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold, plus all of Babel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Me encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for listening. It's early 2008. Mark is letting his fans at TheForce.net know he is moving on to bigger and better things, even though he's accomplished absolutely nothing. Under his Achilles of Edmonton account, he began posting with the subject line, how to parlay fan films into a career. Then he bragged and said goodbye to the Star Wars community that had embraced him for years. He bragged, mind you, about one project that had gone nowhere, leading him, which it didn't, to another project that was going nowhere. His career was based on two suckers, each giving him $30,000. He writes, sweet zombie Jesus, I did it. I did my homework, made sure that all my ducks were in a row before hitting up the big boys, and now we're there. It's my first multi-million dollar feature. And we're looking very realistically at getting Alec Baldwin and Jeff Goldblum on board. (laughs) So I guess, I think I described it as a series. He was trying to make uh, Day Players as as a movie, not a series. Uh, And then he writes, without my fan project to prove my crew had what it takes to get the job done and do it right, this would not be happening right now. This guy... I would wager everything I own that Baldwin and Goldblum's agents literally never replied to a single call or message Mark ever sent, if he sent them, which I doubt. There's no way in hell either of these two actors were even aware of, let alone interested in, anything this motherfucker was doing. Chronic liars like this with delusions of grandeur and hopes of showbiz fame so obnoxious. I've actually been keeping tabs on someone like this (laughs) for two decades now. Not kidding. Someone so desperate to be a star. Are you gonna be an actor? No, I'm gonna be a star. Oh, Uh, let me take you on a brief detour uh, of someone I have known whose story parallels Mark to some degree. It's why I became so fascinated, I think, with Mark's story. If I seem like extra annoyed by this type of personality it's because of this other person I know. Bitchel keeps reminding me of an old former friend of mine, a guy I won't name here because it would be too cruel to embarrass him. We haven't talked in almost a decade. His constant bullshit became way too much to handle for me. But I do follow him on Instagram and every time he posts, Lindsay and I have a laugh about it because he is such a Mark Twitchell and a non-murdery. I have so much going on, you guys. I'm going to be so famous tomorrow when I actually have nothing going on since. I have a text thread going on with two other comics for a couple years now. Uh, they both enjoy watching the show as much as I do. We are perpetually blown away by, the, by constant lies that are so over the top. This guy, let's call him Robbie Delusional. Uh, I met him just a few months after trying stand up for the first time in Spokane when he was around 31, 32 years old. And he talked a big game about becoming a regular at the comedy store, about how he's way bigger and more respected in LA than he was in Spokane. And because I didn't know any better, I just got into the world of stand up. I bought all his bullshit for a month or two. When I met him, he was completely broke, living in someone's basement who let him stay there. Barely had maybe two or three different outfits, constantly getting chased down for child support payments by, uh, two mothers of his two children. Things were not looking amazing for him. He had some stand-up bits that were pretty funny, but he didn't seem to pursue work enthusiastically. He talked a real big game though. He was talking about, uh, you know, wasn't doing the local gigs, not because he wasn't any good or he couldn't get booked because of his skill set, because he was too good and they were jealous and wouldn't book him. They were jealous because he was definitely gonna be famous. He was consumed by fame. The few books he had were biographies of like people like John Belushi, Chris Farley. He wanted to be a big deal on SNL. Uh, he had uh, Johnny Carson's biography. He wanted to be the host of The Tonight Show, but had no plan to get there. Soon, the more I learned about stand-up and the business, the more I realized Robbie Delusional was so full of shit. He would claim to get mysterious bookings from bookers no one else had ever heard of for more money than any other comic would get at that level. Then I'll never forget him telling me uh, one day, talking about why he didn't marry the mother of his second child, the two poor people should never get married. And then no more than six months later, he's dating uh, a woman who is the heir to a local fortune. They're still together. Their relationship has never seemed genuine to me. She's uh, different. Uh, based on who Robbie delusional was attracted to before and who she is, I don't want to be mean, but there's just, there's a very wide gap between the two. Uh, the, the only difference is she has a lot of money. <laughs> I a hundred percent think he married her for her money and for what that money could do for his career. Suddenly Robbie delusional flush with cash is taking trips to LA and, you know, bringing back wild stories. Talks about getting uh, work on this sketch comedy show. He did get work as an extra in three years. He appeared twice. Two different episodes in three years, extremely might like day player, like background roles. He was an extra. Who can afford to continually hang around day after day, week after week, month after month, and always be available for extra work that rarely materializes? Someone who never has to make money because someone else is bankrolling them. And then he tells the local Spokane media he's a full-fledged cast member on this show, and he gets a front page write-up in the paper. <laughs> he gets a gig based on that front page write-up. Ah, and he's telling everybody big things are happening, projects around the corner, big time manager, all lies. Uh, Even though his wife bought him a house in Burbank, uh, he messed up and told me the truth one time about her buying it. He tells other people that he's now made, he was able to buy that because of all the money he's making doing all these secret projects. And he does pop up on some VH1 shows. And I did some of those VH1 shows and they pay nothing. They're non-union. If if you're not a star, you know, which he definitely was never uh, a star, you never would make more than like a couple hundred dollars for like each taping. You wouldn't, there's no way you could make more than $5,000 in a year. Definitely not buy a house in Burbank money. And, and and he's done nothing paid since in years. He doesn't tour, doesn't have a job. He's roughly 50 now. He has starred in uh, one film festival film that was a short film, something like Bitchel would have written. It's like a 15 minute submission uh, when you star in those. And he didn't, he, he was like six billion. I say star. He uh, get it like a couple hundred dollars. And then he went into all these like red carpet premieres for film festivals that happened to showcase that film because he would pay him, you know, his way to go there, but then act like they invited him and were paying him. He talked his way into getting the key to the city being based like uh, where he grew up, which I, I can't also say so many fucking crazy lies. He literally just posted uh, just today as I'm writing as I was uh, recording this on social media about how he just got a haircut because big things are coming soon. Big TV project, getting ready to announce it. He's been saying that kind of shit for over a decade now and they never materialize. He's a, he's a Mark Twitchell. Someone who confuses uh, how admirable it truly is to pursue your dreams. I'm all, I'm all for that. Fucking go get it. With living a lie and pretending you have made it much, much farther towards your dreams than you actually have. That is so sad and troubling and just pathetic. And it helps no one. Be honest with yourself. Living a lie just leads to more lies, to detaching yourself further and further from reality, which actually lowers the odds, ironically, that you will achieve the dream you're lying about in the first place. Facing painful truth is a much more powerful agent of change than nonstop denial and bullshit. Bitchell's lies did not lead to any filmmaking success, just like Robbie Delusional's lies have led to zero entertainment success. They had just led to more and more people thinking he's crazy, which has hurt him. Years ago, He'd make these posts about big project coming soon. Bunch of people would comment underneath it. Now no one comments. It's just so sad. Had Mitchell not been arrested for murder, I am certain he would have ended up like my old friend, right? Just a dude who posts weird shit that people are like, God, come on, stop, stop. Uh, Speaking of lies, Mark in early 2008 is now jumping into his Pontiac Grand Am five mornings a week and driving to a job he does not have. Instead of going to work, he cruises around aimlessly, daydreams, uh, sometimes ends up at a coffee shop, where he quote unquote works on his scripts, you know, fiddles around his laptop, doesn't actually do much, uh, makes some cold calls, trying to line up investors, you know, talks to friends about what a big, you know, showbiz producer he is to make the other people around him who can hear the conversation on the phone think he's super important. Sometimes he'll stop in his parents' house while he's supposed to be at his fake job and just watch TV there (laughs) uh, and eat their food. And then, you know, before they get home, he'll head to his house, tell his wife he's fucking exhausted from another long day of soul-crushing work. And then, you know, the money he deposits in their account is not coming from his job. It's coming from, you know, those two investors. This is painful. Uh, by July 2008, Mark is getting frustrated by the less than expected enthusiastic interest in his film projects. At lunch one day, he sticks his Wi Fi card into his laptop. Remember the days of Wi Fi cards? Anybody? Hey, I'd forgotten about them. Uh, he logs into his Facebook account and enters a new status update. Mark is getting pretty tired of depending on unreliable people to get back to him. A new financial stress had just been added to his plate. It's getting harder to keep uh, not working. Uh, Jess wants to move out of their townhouse and into something nicer. So to do that, Mark lies some more. This is so crazy to me. He buys a second cell phone, registers it under a fake name, uh, which back then was fairly easy to do. And when the mortgage broker would call his quote boss to uh, you know make sure that he has the job he says he does and can afford this new house, he'll just answer that phone in a disguised voice and pretend to be someone named Jim McDougal, <laughs> this fictitious HR manager an imaginary boss who will confirm Twitchell's fake employment details. And this does actually work. He does actually get uh, the, you know, loan for the house. He's able to buy this house. He uses the day player's uh, seed money, $20,000 he had, you know, borrowed for the down payment and he uses a fake job to provide. He has income coming in to pay his mortgage payments. His scam works, but with no job, how is he going to continue to make mortgage payments, right? He'll have to just keep stealing from investors. Uh, Jess, Mark, and Chloe move into their new house, August 1st, 2008, little brick bungalow on a corner lot in the North end of St. Albert. Mark's fake employment routine continues every weekday morning, puts on his work clothes, pretends (laughs) pretends to drive to the office, reappears at home eight or nine hours later. He's just doing this for months. Jess has no idea what's going on. His life as a filmmaker is going nowhere. Secrets of the Rebellion is held up in post-production, which is a nice way of saying it fucking sucked and that no one wanted to work on it. Uh, day players still needed to be, you know, uh, financed further to actually be shot they're low on money because he's been spending it, uh, on his personal bills. And it's hard to get anybody to volunteer their services to work on day players. Cause it's also garbage. Uh, Mark's production business account drops now under, to under $7,000, nearly all that money, right? The 60 grand is, is now gone. So what does he do? He doubles down on his entertainment career and decides to write and shoot something else. He now rents a detached double door garage for $175 a month and sent emails to a few people who had worked as his crew on the Star Wars fan film. He writes, what up, bitches? Of course he does. I have a month to kill, so I decided we should produce a short thriller. Uh, This one is about a serial killer who gets his kicks from taking out people who think they're getting away with something. The shoot dates are Friday, September 26th and Saturday, September 27th. The actual main portion of the short will be shot in a garage I've rented at 5712 40th Avenue, which has power but no heat. So if the weather is being nice, great. If it's a bitch, we'll bring space heaters. Fucking killing it. Look forward to having some fun. Mark Twitchell, Express Entertainment. His email to the crew also included a description of his desired special effects. I need a severed ear. And there's one shot I'd like to get of the victim's decapitation. The more realistic, the better. It's a darkly lit scene, so minor detail is not as important as overall weight and trajectory of the head falling from the body and the believability of the blood spurting afterward. The shot I have in mind is practically a silhouette of the victim. Did I mention he's more obsessed uh, than ever with Dexter now? He is. On Friday, August 29th, Twitchell drives to the U.S. border, a seven-hour drive straight south that ends at the mouth of a security, uh, or ends at a security checkpoint. Excuse me. He planned to drive to Montana to buy props and supplies for this new horror short. He told Jess he had been hired to direct and produce a music video down in the States. And then, what's you know, again, a lie, of course. And then he tells the custom officer the same lie about the music video, who then asked Twitchell if he has a work visa to work on this video. And he doesn't because it's nonsense and he's refused entry. He tried to bluff the wrong person. Like you can get away with telling your wife, that you're not gonna get away with telling a customs officer. Uh, So Mark now heads back in the direction he'd come, reaches Calgary a few hours later, pulls into a hotel. There he surfs the internet until he finds a stun gun he was looking for sold by a seller who could ship it to Canada. His secret weekend in Calgary includes a variety of online purchases, a meat cleaver, pair of handcuffs, software to prevent tracking his internet activity through his web address. (laughs) If it if it feels like some of this does not have to do with anything uh, or it doesn't have anything to do with shooting a short film, it's because it doesn't. He's also preparing for a murder. In August of 2008, Bitchel has decided to do some, to, some method, you know, acting preparation for his Dexter knockoff. A few days after he gets back from Calgary, Jess catches him on AshleyMadison.com, a site where married individuals meet singles looking to have illicit fun together. This site, founded in Canada in 2002, actually claims to currently have about 60 million users, which is disturbing. Its founder, Darren J. Morgenstern, founded it with the slogan of, life is short, have an affair. What a nice business to be proud of. Uh, Jess confronts Mark, who tells her that he's working on an article about married men and being on the website was research, which was not true. Uh, He wasn't looking for women to have an affair with, though, either. He was looking for murder victims. On Saturday, September 17th, Twitchell, his crew, a few actors he found online uh, through casting call websites, arrived at the detached garage he'd rented and converted into a makeshift film studio. And they spend 15 hours over the weekend making a short film. Uh, His crew had already built a set, and uh, together they were going to make House of Cards, is what they were calling it. An eight-minute short film inspired by Dexter. For a guy who still thinks of himself as a creative genius, dude has no original bones in his body. He's making a Dexter knockoff, naming it after another existing show. The original BBC House of Cards came out way back in 1990. Uh, Like in Dexter, the killer in Mark's copy used duct tape to restrain his victims on a large table inside a kill room lined with plastic sheeting to make the room easy to clean and prevent forensic evidence from seeping outside. Victims were dismembered and tossed away in garbage bags. Like Dexter, the killer got away with it uh, because it was fictional. Uh, Mark was real deep in his Dexter love now, having watched both the first and second seasons over and over, read all the books, right? One of the most inspiring pieces I've, I've ever seen as an artist, he wrote in an email to an American film contact. Probably someone as delusional as he was. Maybe maybe he's writing to my old friend. Uh, engaging does not begin to describe it. Mark was now even role-playing as Dexter Morgan on Facebook, right? He'd opened an account under the fictional character's name, uh, included more than a dozen photos of stills of the show. He was gathering online friends who seemed to like that he pretended to be Dexter. Mark would communicate with his followers, responding as Dexter. Uh, in his short film, Bitch made a few changes to Dexter, creating a version of the killer who wears a modified hockey mask, who targets married men by pretending to be a woman on an online dating site. Where Dexter goes after killers, uh, Bitchell's Dexter uh, goes after cheaters, which seems a bit extreme. Uh, and in real life, he wouldn't even do that. In real life, he would just go for single guys, hoping for a fun date. Uh, the killer convinces men to meet the the you know woman quote unquote at their at his home. When they show up, they're attacked from behind, duct taped to a cold metal chair, bolted to the concrete floor. Uh, then the killer tortures them for uh, into revealing their personal banking information and social networking passwords. They're then brutally killed, dismembered, body parts stuffed into garbage bags. In another twist on Dexter, Bitchel's fictional killer is able to get away with the random horrific murders by convincing everyone that the victims are still alive. He uses passwords extracted by torture to send messages from their accounts, uh, writing that they're just on an extended vacation that they told no one about. Uh, The killer explains in the script, they'll just assume you ran off with one of your hussies and decided not to come back. Bam! That's the Oscar line right there. Uh, And in the script, this works. In real life, you'll find out not so much. A young man named Robert Barnsley flew across Canada from Toronto to play the killer in Mark's movie. He was excited about the prospect of a $30,000 paycheck that Mark had promised him that he will never receive. Mark has about $5,000 to his name at this point. He won't pay this guy anything. On the film set inside the chilly detached suburban garage, the 20 year old actor a bit freaked out when he realizes most of Mark's movie props are not props, they're real weapons. Sharp knives, a stun gun that is a real stun gun, a sturdy metal table, you know, two steel samurai swords that are also not fake. Mark even wanted to use real blood from a local butcher shop for the film's murder scene. Luckily for Bobby, uh, the crew settles on corn syrup and red food coloring to mimic blood in the end. For the death scene in which the killer stabs the victim while he's duct taped to the metal chair, uh, Barnsley holds a real sword (laughs) just as Twitchell had requested. This is not how it's supposed to go on a film set. Um, The victim played by actor Chris Heward did not have to pretend to be rising in pain. Also, while he's being like uh, tormented, he actually was very uncomfortable because he had been very roughly taped to a chair. Uh, Bitchell also had a starring role in this movie. After the victim's death, the movie cuts to a man, Mark Bichell, sitting at a computer, writing out the violent premise for what he had just for what had just been filmed. The writer then closes down a fake uh, female dating profile on his computer, packs away the hockey mask, just like the killers, implying that the movie is about to be reenacted in real life, which was what he was actually doing. As the writer walks out of the house, he stops briefly to have a chat with his wife, who happens to be reading a Dexter novel on the couch. She asks, "Off to the gym, honey? You bet." Mark replies, gotta relieve some tension from sitting so long. How's the story coming along, she asks. Really well, sweetie. It's true when they say the best way to succeed is to write what you know. (laughs) Dude thought he was so smart, he could just blatantly confess on screen to what he was doing. Uh, When the two days of filming wrap up, the crew celebrates with some drinks out before heading home. Uh, After wrapping, Mark continues to think about his new short film. He's fantasizing more and more about actually going through with killing people. He's also continued to pretend to be Dexter Morgan online a few days after wrapping one back and forth series of messages on Facebook with an attractive Dexter fan turns steamy and he reveals his real identity. The woman whose name is Renee, uh, uh the two are now start sending photos of themselves back and forth and trading stories about dark fantasies online, a little flirtation here. Uh, the first, uh, they first made it out to be fictional saying they were just trading film concept, film concepts. And then Renee confesses, I carry my own dark demons every day. There are days when all I want to see is broken necks and blood, but it never happens. Mark writes back, there's nothing you could possibly reveal to me that would make me cease communicating with you. We all have a dark side, some darker than others, and you're not the only one to relate to Dexter. It sometimes scares me how much I relate. Uh, Mark also still chatting online with ex-girlfriend Tracy Higgins. He's flirting with her again, picking up where the two had left off with their little kiss, little makeout session the previous summer. They make plans to meet up again. And then Mark organizes uh, this this plan through his Dexter Morgan profile. He knows uh, that Jess is currently monitoring his emails and personal Facebook account because she doesn't trust him. And she doesn't trust him because he still lies all the time. Uh, Mark is now also browsing plentyoffish.com, pretending to be a woman. He makes a profile under the username spiderwebs, pretending to be a blonde woman named Sheena, looking for a fling in Edmonton. Uh, meanwhile, despite not being able to catch Mark in all these lies, Jess catches him in enough other lies to demand that he starts seeing a therapist. So he promises to start seeing a psychiatrist every Friday evening. His first appointment is scheduled for October 3rd, or at least that's what he told her. It was not. Uh, he lies about seeing a therapist to deal with his line. <laughs> he's, he's too busy planning on using his Sheena dating profile. to try and lure in his first victim to go see a therapist. Doesn't have time. October 3rd, uh, Zil Tetro, Zil uh, it's a French name, Gilles uh, excited to meet the girl he'd been talking to online, Sheena. They've been writing messages back and forth for four days and today, Friday is going to be their first date. Gilles is a 33-year-old newcomer to Edmonton who had just gotten a job at a local casino. Dating had, did not come easy to him. He had a hard time finding women he was attracted to who were attracted to him. He was lonely. So when he sees the, uh, the, the profile pic of the smoking hot Sheena jackpot, uh, he's willing to overlook some weird signs. Sheena had given him some odd directions to her place. She wanted him to drive down a back alley, park outside a detached double door garage. She'd leave one of the garage doors open a touch so he could sneak into the garage, cross the yard to the back door of the house. Sheena explained how there was no parking in front because of a bus stop and the landlord padlocked the back gate. Uh huh. Pull into the only driveway on your left that is not paved, Sheena wrote. Seriously, whoever heard of a driveway that looks like the Amazon? It won't swallow your car, (laughs) I promise. I wonder how many times Bitchell the screenwriter wrote those last two lines, right? Was that like the third or fourth draft? You know, he's thinking them out. Seriously, whoever heard of a driveway that looks like uh, the Middle Earth's Mirkwood? <laughs> I'm not a hobbit, I promise. Ah, no, too smart, Mark. Stupid Jill probably isn't a token fan. Tolkien fan, nah, not as well-read as I am. How about, uh, uh, seriously, whoever heard of a driveway that looks like the Black Forest of Schwarzwald? I promise I'm not a bloodthirsty witch. Ha <laughs> ha, brilliant. A Hansel and Gretel reference that also spells out impending doom. Fucking genius, Mark but what if he won't get it? Ah, alas, I must dumb down my message for the uneducated masses. I'll save it for a script. Uh, Meanwhile, across town, Mark spends the day getting ready, psyching himself up for premeditated murder. He brings uh, duct tape, you know, he gets a new padlock, uh, two disposable coveralls. He covers the ceiling, walls, floors of his garage, movie set, kill room with plastic sheeting. Sets up his tools. You know, he has a painted hockey mask, a stun gun, pair of handcuffs, a fake prop handgun, just like in his film. Uh, He writes about his preparation. My shopping list was very thorough. I went out to several different stores to avoid buying all of my items from one location, and I paid cash to avoid a paper trail just in case. Okay, so that part's pretty smart, actually. A street hockey mask that I would soon cut the mouth out of and paint gold streaks into for dramatic effect. Weird. Basic dark green hoodie, something comfortable with pockets that hides distinctive marks, body type, and hair. Two sets of disposable overalls. For what was, to be sure, a messy cleanup process. And I would use the plastic bags all this came in to wrap my shoes up for the process. What a fucking creep. Painting gold streaks for dramatic effect as if this is not a real murder. and just a story he's writing. Less than an hour before attempting to kill this man, he flips open his laptop, checks his Dexter Morgan profile, updates his status to Dexter is patiently waiting for his next victim uh, play date, buddy. After 15 minutes past, uh, or at 15 minutes past seven, Jill gets out of his truck, Ducks under one of the partially open garage bay doors. As soon as he enters this garage, Mark grabs him from behind, stun guns him, sending an arc of electricity into Jill's chest. It's a good shot, but the stun gun Mark had bought didn't incapacitate Jill. It didn't cause anything more than a short shock and a small burst of pain. This is how Mark described it in SK Confessions. The typical taser gun used by police carries a charge of 50,000 volts, and we've seen what they do to the people hit with them. The stun baton boasts 800,000 volts, uh, which sounds practically lethal, but you have to understand that it isn't the voltage, but the amps delivered by the weapon that matter. Either way, I was confident in the weapon's strength, but my confidence was misplaced. Jill spins around, pushes Bitchel away now, then tries to make a run for it, and then Mark pulls out the prop gun. It's a fake, but of course, Jill doesn't know that. Mark commands him to get down, put his hands behind his back. Jill's obeys. He's hoping that this is just going to be a robbery. He tells Mark, take whatever you want. If you cooperate, this will only be a standard robbery. Mark tells him, enjoying, I imagine, the idea of getting Jill's hopes up. For a moment, he feels so powerful, so in control, but the feeling will not last. I love this Jill's guy. Jill uh, turns out to be a lot tougher than expected. Something in Jill snaps. He doesn't want to die like this. He leaps up, surprising Mark, then lunges for the gun. And then when he gets a hold of it, he finds out it's a fucking fake gun. And now he's pissed. With a burst of rage and adre- adrenaline, he starts beating the shit out of Mark. <laughs> His first attempted at murder is not going well. He tries to bend the gun in half. He rips it from Bitchell's hands, it into a corner. Uh, then he picks up a pair of handcuffs he had found on the floor. Mark is now the scared one. He's whining. Put those down. Just put them down. <laughs> he, he throws him down and then he starts punching Mark. Uh, now the two guys are wrestling, unable to firmly gain any kind of upper hand. He's actually losing. Um, uh, you know, Bitchell is, you know, trying to get away. And then Jill thinks, okay, uh, maybe I should get away. Maybe because this guy, uh, because he doesn't have a gun, doesn't mean he doesn't have some other weapon. He just wants to get the hell out of there. And then uh, he's also trying to get the hockey mask off of Bitchel so he can get his identity. He can't get that. They wrestle for a while longer uh, with Mark gripping Jill's jacket. Jill manages to slip out of the jacket, and then he rolls under the garage door. Now he crawls along on his hands and knees for a little bit through the dirt. Mark lunges after him. It's very dramatic. Grabs his ankles. Then he starts to pull him back into the garage. What a fucking nightmare. But then uh, uh, when Mark releases Jill momentarily to maneuver the door further open, Jill springs up and runs again. Uh, Mark would write later. He made it into the driveway. That's when I knew I was pooched and he staggers, uh, Jill staggers back to this crossroads where the alley meets the walking path. And he spots a young couple out for an evening stroll. Please. He gasped, collapsing at their feet. There's a guy attacking me. He's trying to mug me. And then Mark Twitchell runs into the alley, uh, still in the hockey mask. And Jill points at him and says, that's the man. The couple looks at the masked stranger. And then Mark says cheerfully, oh, hey friends. Mark thought he could, he could convince the couple that he and Jill were just friends doing a reenactment. And then they'd be like, oh, okay, these guys are just having fun. Uh, But Jill is disheveled. He's obviously uh, scared, and they they don't buy it. And now the couple and Jill they run away from Mark. Mark, knowing that someone is going to call the police, now beats a quick retreat. Jill makes it to his car and gets the hell out of there. Uh, When he finally gets home, he he catches a glimpse of his battered appearance in the mirror because they did trade some punches, uh, and then he passes out. And when he wakes up later, he checks his plentyoffish.com account, and Sheena's profile is gone. It had been erased. Mark's first attempt at murder did not go the way he envisioned it kind of like his film career. But despite, uh, you know, being a total failure, much like with the failure of his film career, he spins his defeat into victory and he feels accomplished. He listened to a police scanner he had set up in the garage when he ran back in there, determined that Jill had not reported the attack, neither had the couple. He writes in SK Confessions, I wasn't sure if I should believe it worked. I walked calmly out to my car, got in and drove away across the entire city, back to my home where my wife and child waited for me. During the entire trip, I kept thinking surely this douchebag would call the police. Not that it mattered if he did. I covered my tracks well. (laughs) Not that it would matter. The police are no match for Logan Wolverine, the great Mark Twitchell. They might as well try to arrest Darth Vader. Mark continues, uh, writing, no patrol car would come to take me away bound in handcuffs, to be brought up on assault charges, forever ending my serial killing career before it began bringing down my marriage with it when my wife finds out what I really am. Uh, Despite his false bravado here, he was actually a little nervous. Uh, He's paranoid that a text from his wife asking him to pick up a package was actually his wife trying to get him home because the police were there. And he wrote, it's pretty fucking hard to concentrate on anything when you live in constant expectation of the police arriving at your doorstep. Turns out my wife did need to pick up a package, a Pilates chair she wanted me to assemble. The directions couldn't be any more complicated than the directions for making mac and cheese, but I had a really hard time because the apprehension was already there. Of course, I can fucking build anything with directions because I'm a genius, but you know, I was a little worried about getting picked up for murder, so it made it harder, and that's why I fucked up some screws and some bolts and stuff, you know? Uh, He was able to concentrate enough to start planning his next murder attempt. He decided he needed a better weapon than a shitty prop kind of weak stun gun. So uh, poor Johnny Altinger will pay for his new preparation. Friday, October 10th, 2008, Johnny Altinger excited to meet a woman he'd been talking to on plentyoffish.com, a girl named Jen based on her pictures, looked about 35 years old and smoking hot. She said she wanted an intimate encounter. Fuck yeah. Very easy way to lure a lot of dudes, including myself back when I was single into not thinking clearly and just doing something stupid. One of her most recent messages had read, although this sounds exciting, I have to make sure you're not some kind of weirdo. And so far you seem fairly well put together, but anyone can lie online, right? Oh, he, he loved writing that. (laughs) Like me, the real Dexter. So I have an idea for how both of us Can be made comfortable with this situation. And by both of us, I mean me, LOL. I bought this, well, let's call it a handyman special. I'm all about resale. And the back gate is a little screwed up, so I locked it off and everyone's just been entering through the garage. So it works out okay. When you see it, you'll know what I mean. If you do this, I can direct you to the house from the alley without giving away the street address. And I can see before I let you in. Maybe this is paranoid on my part, but I have to look after myself. My first instincts about people are never wrong. And I know to trust them. I want to play Very much. But I have to be cautious, as I'm sure you can understand. If you're okay with this, let me know. If not, we'll have to miss out on each other. On a lighter note, though, if we really gel, you said you had four days off. How long can I keep you if I choose? (laughs) Maybe you should pack for a few days. LOL, Jen. (laughs) LOL. If you just walk to the back eight, big guy, I'm gonna try and suck your dick off. If you don't want to, c'est la vie. Happy travels. But if you do want to, I'm going to let you loophole my poopo until you're only able to come dust because your balls are dry. Your choice. Uh, Unsurprisingly, Johnny chooses uh, chooses to come over. He's excited. Of course he is. He's a 38-year-old who uh, worked at an oil field equipment manufacturer uh, on quality control, spends most of his long shifts measuring parts. He'd been single for a while. He's horny. By the summer of 2008, Johnny had long been looking for a a softish place to try and break his dick off, a place not composed of five fingers that was also attached to his arm. He'd met a woman, a woman named Deborah, on Plenty of Fish back in 2006, but that relationship hadn't worked out and he'd been on a dry spell. Uh, other than that, life was going great. He loved motorcycles. He owned two, a Honda 500cc, a Yamaha 1200cc, a sport touring bike. He kept his motorcycle helmet, jacket always at the ready. Those bikes were his babies. If he was going out of town, he'd carefully cover his touring bike and at times even have a friend come by to check on it every once in a while, make sure it was okay. Besides his date, Johnny also had other plans for the weekend. He was supposed to take his good buddy Dale Smith for a motorcycle driving lesson on October 12th, the Sunday before Thanksgiving that year in Canada. Uh, Canada, just like the U.S., also has a fall holiday uh, called Thanksgiving, second Monday of every October. When Dale talked to his friend on the Friday before the long weekend, Johnny sounded lighthearted. He was going to meet a sexy lady he'd met on an internet dating website. Since she'd forwarded him some weird directions, Johnny, smart enough to pass those along to Dale, right? He told someone where he was going. Meanwhile, that afternoon, Mark meets up with Tracy. He'd write about her in SK Confessions using the name Lacey to disguise Tracy. So fucking smart. He writes, oh, my sweet Lacey. Just in case you are wondering, Lacey is not my wife or my daughter. Lacey is my ex-girlfriend. On paper, she's the complete opposite of everything that should be my perfect match. She has two small dogs that she treats like human children. And those people usually drive me up the wall. Ah, oh, we wouldn't get along. She also periodically depressed. Uh, she's also periodic, periodically depressed and suffers from very frequent anxiety attacks, whereas I usually prefer a much more together woman. Uh-huh, as if you have such a choice of whoever you want. All these things exist, but I love her uncontrollably and always will. Mark loved Tracy so much, he even talked about a test he would do on his relationships, unbeknownst to his future partners, where he'd ask himself, if Lacey walked into my life and asked me to run away with her, would I do it? If the answer was yes, he ended the relationship. If the answer was no, he knew the relationship was real. And Jess had passed that Tracy test, kind of. He he thought she did. But when when the opportunity arose to meet up with Tracy again, Mark went for it, and the two planned to go to a movie at South Edmonton Commons, Cineplex Odeon. They did not plan which movie they were going to see, but once Mark got to the theater and saw what was playing, he knew what his choice would be. Quarantine. Psychological thriller, similar in his mind at least, to his House of Cards project. Although it was fiction, it was shot like a documentary from the point of view of the cameraman, making the film appear like a a recording of a real incident. Uh, I saw it not long after it came out. I remember really liking it. And Quarantine stars Jennifer Carpenter, who Bitchel knew from Dexter, where he played, you know, uh, Morgan Dexter's adoptive sister. Well, I guess Morgan was adopted and it played, you know, his uh, sister on the favorite show. The two buy popcorn, claim their seats at the matinee showing, talk about their past relationship. Mark makes it seem like he and Jess are separated, you know, and they make out. And then when the movie's over, Tracy rushes home to feed her two dogs. He's hoping for more than that, but oh well. Uh, Mark, Mark had plans anyway. Uh, he heads to the garage and repairs some plastic sheeting that had fallen down. Gets his kill room ready. Make sure his mask and two steel pipes are right where he wanted them. Johnny arrives at the garage a few minutes after seven. He Cautiously peers in. Mark is waiting in the shadows and he hears Johnny call out, hello. And then Johnny decided not to come inside the garage. And Mark had not planned for that and had to improvise. Hello? Mark calls back. Hey, ho- hold on a second. He flips on the lights of this fucking kill room. The two men see each other. Mark's in a hoodie and jeans. Johnny's wearing glasses. No Jen in sight. Uh, Hey, I'm Mark, Mitchell. said. I'm a filmmaker. I'm dressing this to look like a set. He motions with the plastic sheeting covering his metal table, ceiling, floor, walls. He pretends to be Jen's friend who's using the garage as a workshop. He uh, tries to keep up a cheery tone, showing him a couple of props. "Uh, I I was the guy who made that Star Wars fan film, he blurts out. Have you heard of it? Johnny says he had not. (laughs) Of course he had not. It was never finished. Uh, seeing the conversation is going nowhere. Mitchell tries to wrap it up and says, uh, listen, Jen's not back yet. She's out on a short trip with her friends. Uh, she should be back in a bit. Maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes. And then Johnny nods. Okay. I'll come back. Jumps in his car, drives off. And a couple minutes later, the poor bastard comes back. The lure of hot sex is strong. Mark grabs his phone now, pretends to be on a call. Oh, Hey, Mark smiles. Hey, I just got off the phone with Jen. She said, she's stuck in traffic. Won't be back here for at least a half an hour. Do you want to stick around or come back or Johnny says, nah, I'll leave. Then, so he goes, he leaves again. Uh, He goes to his car, unbeknownst to Mark, he calls his friend Dale, tells him about this weird fucking guy he met in the garage where he's supposed to meet Jen for their date. He returns to his condo, uh, writes a quick message to Jen. 20 minutes later, she writes back, apologizing for the delay, saying that she is now at the house. Would love it if he could come back. Johnny reads his message, uh, her message over, thinks for a moment, consults with little Johnny, uh, who gives him an enthusiastic one thumb up, and he responds that he will soon head over. He knows Dale's going to want to know about this. So he fires off an email. She's home now. I'm heading over again. Hey, a lot can be read in that. Hey, hey. who cares about that weird guy with the knives and whatnot in the garage? Little Johnny is going cave diving. Woo. Uh, Just like before, he ducks under the garage door, walks into the movie set to find Mark still there. I guess I'm just a glutton for punishment. Johnny says, referring to how he's driven to the garage several times. Now you have no idea. Mark would later claim. He said, and he follows this by saying, I doubt he said that. I doubt he said something that scripted. I, I, I bet he was like, I don't know what's happening. And he just and he swings a metal pipe at Johnny, cracking the base of Johnny's skull. Johnny does not go down as quickly as Mark expected then. He expects him to fall to the ground immediately like in a movie. Instead, he screams and starts to try and fight back. Mark swings again and again and again. Johnny still doesn't go down. Now he's screaming for the police. Uh, and then, uh, Mark hits him with the pipe again. Blood sprays out across the floor. Still doesn't go down. Johnny now offers Mark money thinking this is a robbery and it kind of was. Mark wanted to torture him for his pin number. Um, you promise Mark says that, you know, t- as far as like, you know, you're just gonna give me th- your money. Johnny promises, Mar- begs Mark to stop hitting him with the pipe. Mark does not stop, swings the pipe again. Johnny now tries to fight him off again. Mark then grabs a hunting knife and thrusts it into Johnny's stomach. According to SK confessions, Mark later wrote his reaction was pure Hollywood. The lurch forward with the grunt was dead on TV movie of the week. What a fucking douchebag. Johnny groans again. Mark is now stabbing him in the neck. Later, Mark would say he wished he had tricked Johnny by offering a call to the ambulance if Johnny gave Mark his PIN number, and then he would have just killed him anyway. And again, what a douchebag. Finally, Johnny does die, this poor bastard. Mark is covered in blood. He wonders if a neighbor had heard this long, prolonged, you know, like violent struggle and called the police, but no one did. Mark now heaves uh, Johnny's body under the table, gets out his game processing kit, takes Johnny's wallet and keys, then cuts off his clothes, most of them, anyways. Uh, He puts all of Johnny's things into a steel drum except his underwear, as he would later say in SK Confessions. I cut the shirt off too, but left the underwear. I don't need to see my kills dead junk hanging out while I'm trying to work. The sociopath is trying to work on his comedy writing and his murder description. I left the underwear on. I'll save the necrophilia for when I'm home with my wife. She's not dead, but my boner sure dies every time I see her naked. Ha, 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 bada boom, bada bing. Uh, Mark cuts Johnny's legs off with the knees, puts the severed legs in trash bags. Then he takes the arms off with the elbows, uses scissors to cut off Johnny's fingertips. My God. Cuts off Johnny's head, cuts his torso into two pieces. Uh, The work turns out to be more boring than Mark expected, he said. So he found ways to entertain himself, singing, talking out loud, playing. He wrote, I grabbed his jaw with my gloved hand and moved it while making a funny voice to make it look like it was talking and chuckled my chuckled to myself at the total silliness of it all. This fucking psychopath. Uh, around 10 PM, Jess starts getting worried about where Mark is. He should have been home from therapy by now, the therapy he didn't go to. So she dials his cell. He said, he's just coming back home from the gym. But then she reminded him how could you d- be doing that? The gym closed at nine. And then he was like, <laughs> he's like, no, not that gym, uh, different old gym. This was not a great lie. Because Mark had told Jess that he had canceled his old gymership a month ago. And Jess called him out on this. And then he tells her, he's like, Well, a- actually, I know. Listen, I said I had canceled the old gym, but I forgot and have two gyms now and forgot about the new gym to work out at and was working out at the old gym. Like, for a guy who lies all the time, he's so bad at lying. Mark finally gets home around midnight. Uh, she tells him to pick some uh, baby formula up on the way home. He does not. He showers, he puts his blood-soaked clothes in the washer, socks, pants, shirt, uh, dark green hoodie. <sighs> the next day, Saturday, October 11th, Jess and Mark go to Bourbon Street, a wing of the West Edmonton Mall designed to look like the French Quarter in New Orleans. After dinner at a restaurant, they head to a comedy show, this is so weird, at Rick Bronson's The Comic Strip Comedy Club, just a few doors down. So weird because I performed, I'm not kidding, at that club at some point in 2008. I can't find the old booking email. I tried, I don't hold on to my emails for years And the 2008 calendar for them seems to have not been archived. I legitimately might've been the comic Mark watched that night. (laughs) I remember it being, you know, cold. uh, So it wasn't summer. There's probably like a one in 30 chance that he watched my show, which is so weird. Next day, Sunday, October 12th, Canadian Thanksgiving, Mark, Jess, and Chloe are planning to head to Jess's parents' house for a big meal. At five in the morning, Mark wakes up before his wife and daughter to drive to Johnny's condo. He'd gotten the address from Johnny's ID. And the keys to the front door were in Johnny's pocket when he was killed. And this is so fucking stupid to do for such a smart guy. Even if his body doesn't turn up, Johnny is going to be reported as being missing eventually. And if anyone sees Mark go to Johnny's apartment right when he goes missing, of course he's going to be suspect number one. And now he's putting fingerprints and fucking DNA evidence in Johnny's apartment. In this apartment, he steals some cash, changes the automatic response on Johnny's email to say that Johnny was going on a two-month vacation to the Caribbean, right? Just like from his little short. He's going to get away with this because he's going to make everybody think that Johnny just went on a vacation he told no one about. Because people do that, right? They just suddenly go on a vacation with no warning. They don't tell their employers that they're just going to the Caribbean for two months. That's not going to raise red flags. Mark changes Johnny's Facebook status, deletes Johnny's online dating profile, steals Johnny's laptop, and steals randomly his printer. Uh, In the printer tray was a letter to Johnny's insurance company with Johnny's signature at the bottom. So he thinks he can use this signature to forge a bill of sale for the car if police ever ask him about it because he's also going to take this guy's car. He writes all this down in Serial Killer Confessions. Making all this even more stupid, he is still not disposed of Johnny's body. Now he goes to a Thanksgiving dinner with his wife and kid before he deals with that. After a family lunch, Mark cannot resist uh, returning to the internet, dropping some clues about what he'd been up to to some of his Dexter pals. He, he wrote the uh, to fellow Dexter fan, Renee, I've also had something else keeping me busy. I'm really concerned about telling anyone because of the implications. Suffice it to say, I crossed the line on Friday. And I liked it. Leaving more evidence. (laughs) Also, at some point in the next few days following the murder, Mark makes a full confession to his baby daughter that he will write about. The cool thing about a seven-month-old is that you can openly tell them anything and they can't rat you out, he'd write. I needed that from my daughter since anyone else I could spill to would be dialing 911 before I finished. I knew I only had a limited amount of time before Zoe's comprehension, right? Codename Zoe for Chloe that no one would figure out. Uh, Before Zoe's comprehension got to the level where they where that wouldn't fly. So I got in as much talk time as possible in her early development when the words are just soothing sounds to get her used to the English language. What is happening? October 13th, 2008. Mark, writing now as murder victim Johnny, sends an email to Johnny's friends. Hey there, I've met an extraordinary woman named Jen who has offered to take me on a nice long tropical vacation. (laughs) We'll be staying in her winter home in Costa Rica. A uh, phone number to follow soon. I won't be back in town until December 10th, but I will be checking my email periodically. See you around the holidays, Johnny. Again, what a fucking idiot. This is 2008, not 1888. People are, are you know, real easy to get a hold of. Johnny had a cell phone. Did he think that no one would find it suspicious that with no warning whatsoever, Johnny would suddenly leave the fucking country for two months and also stop answering his cell phone? Did he forget that cell phones worked internationally back in 2008? For a guy who thinks he's a genius, he's so goddamn stupid. I hope he hears this in prison. Mark, if you're listening, you are so fucking stupid. Mark logged on to Facebook now with Johnny and posts, Johnny Altinger is taking off to the Caribbean for a few months. See you all when I get back. He changes his relationship status to in a relationship. Now, some of Johnny's friends online are thrilled to hear about this because they don't keep up with his life like any online people. Have fun, take lots of pictures, replies one friend. For a couple of months, another asks, tough life. As if to prove that he was finished with online dating now that he'd found this amazing woman. Johnny's plenty of fish, you know, .com account is deleted that morning. Uh, It's now three days after Johnny's date. While many of his online friends are not concerned, his real life friend, Dale Smith, is very concerned. None of this feels right, of course, at all. Johnny's not responding to his calls. Johnny had missed their motorcycle lesson without saying a word about it. Uh, You know, and, and Dale and Johnny had talked the night Johnny disappeared. Dale knew that a weird dude had shown up at that garage instead of his date. Also, when Dale went over to Johnny's condo, he notices that his cherry red Mazda is missing from the parking spot and much more alarming, Johnny had not covered up his motorcycle with the tarp and there's no way he would ever do that. So Dale now tries to report him missing to the police, uh, but the officer initially doesn't seem there's anything fishy about a middle-aged man running off with a romantic woman for a long time getaway, or a long getaway. And I guess to be fair to that officer, sometimes I'm sure some version of that does happen. Lucifina's sweet magic is pretty powerful. Uh, So now it looks kind of like Mark might be getting away with a really poorly thought out series of crimes. And of course he won't. Uh, uh, Meanwhile, the week after the murder, the Tuesday following Thanksgiving, Mark uh, still keeping up the ruse that he had a full-time job from his wife. Uh, He goes to collect Johnny's remains, uh, the steel drum and a can of oil from the garage. And then he goes to his parents' house, sets up in the backyard at his parents' fucking yard, puts the bagged remains in the steel drum, Johnny's remains and lights them on fire. Genius. Genius. Where should I burn the body? I know, in my parents' backyard, where I'm sure the smell of burning flesh in a fucking steel drum will alarm zero neighbors. And he finds out it's not as easy as he thought to burn a body. It's almost like this is real life and not a, a fucking scene from Dexter. Soon Mark hears sirens, thinking someone had called uh, you know, the fire department. He douses the fire, waits for the sirens to die down. Uh, the fire department actually had been called to somewhere else. Then he opens the wet bags and finds that while the bags had melted, the remains inside were not damaged at all. So what does he do? Does he bury the remains somewhere else? Does he take them, you know, uh, to to a different location, get a hotter fire burning? Uh, Does he put the pieces in heavy bags with rocks and throw the remains into a lake or other deep body of water? No, he packs up the parts that now smell like fucking burnt plastic. And he brings everything back to the garage and he calls it a day. Ah, then when he gets back home, he plays with his daughter for a while, chats with his ex Tracy on instant messenger. She invites him over now for a late night rendezvous. And Mark waits for Jess to fall asleep. Uh, And when she falls asleep that night, instead of going back to the fucking garage and disposing of a body that will send him to prison for life, he gets in his car and drives an hour and a half to Tracy's place. On the way, he gets a ticket for speeding. Another incident he'd have to try and keep from his wife with more lies. Then Mark gets to Tracy's and I'm sure you can guess what happened next. Uh, We'll let him tell it. He talks about everything here uh, in in SK Confessions, where he replaces Tracy's name with the, you know, codename of Lacey. Uh, Since Mark writes about this like he is writing a porno scene, let's set it to the proper music. I got to Lacey's without further incident. She let me inside dressed in her pajamas, and no sooner had I dropped my bag on the floor than we were making out intensely. We moved to her bedroom and shut the door to keep the dogs out. We kissed passionately in juicy anticipation of what was coming next. She lay on her bed and opened the pajamas to reveal a sexy set of white lingerie-style underwear. Who adds underwear to that? The bottoms were a thong, which always gets me insanely turned on. Lacey looked better than I had ever remembered her. A decade ago, at the tender age of 24, she was gorgeous, but still not as fine as she looked on this very night in question. She'd been hitting the gym, gone tanning to prepare for her vacation and had taken up the hobby of belly dancing. I have never been a fan of scrawny girls. In my opinion, if you can see ribs poking to the skin, the woman needs a hefty helping of cheeseburgers very badly. Lacey was beautiful, sensual, with curves in all the right places. Now, she was the ideal textbook of what a woman should look like, with the added skill of how to rotate her hips in ways most women could only dream they could. Her large, deep green eyes stared seductively into mine, and I couldn't resist her even if I tried. Not that I would want to try. Wolverine! Being with her, I added the Wolverine, being with her took on the pace of quickly catching up to how we used to be. Lacey and I explored each other for a good two hours that night, trying several positions, all of them making both of us crazy. I was free to suck on various parts of her body and go down on her for as long as she could take it before needing me inside of her again. The way she felt, the way she tasted, all so familiar and so amazing to have again. She came to orgasm four times before I let myself get to the same place. And when we were done, there was no describing the contentment we experienced. What a fucking stud, you guys. wawa! calm down, Lucifina. You're going to flood the place. He's the best lover ever. I wonder if Tracy would remember this night going down like this. Uh, No, no, she will not. Uh, I would love it if she wrote a version where he came in his pants before he'd get them off and then she held him in her arms for a while while he cried until he fell asleep. Uh, On the morning of October 14th, Amateur gigolo, Mark Bitchel Twitchell, leaves Tracy's house and goes back to the garage. Now that he was done with a couple of hours of constant orgasm-inducing stud-fucking, he can get back to genius body disposal. He fashions a makeshift apron out of some plastic sheeting and starts cutting the body into smaller pieces. Like carving a turkey, he wrote. Zero guilt, zero remorse for this. Uh, He actually writes about how happy the murder made him feel. The experience changed my sense of place in the world forever, he gushed. I felt stronger somehow above other people. I felt like the proud owner of a very dark secret that no one would ever be in on. Things that I said to people would carry double entendres like they hadn't before. Oh, honey, work was murder today. Would be more literal than Tess would ever know. God, he's a fucking terrible writer. Uh, When he takes breaks, he fantasizes about how Tracy had been a total porn star in the sack. And by breaks, I'm guessing he means beat off sessions. Uh, Once he's finished, he loads bags into his car. His new plan is to wait for nightfall and then dump the bags into a river. And he's going to fuck this up too. Also, everything is not going amazing with Tracy. She doesn't seem to be reflecting as positively about their passion night as he was. When he gets home from his murder garage, he finds Tracy online. But now instead of trading steamy messages, she has something very different to say. As Mark says, she was horribly depressed from reflecting on her past relationship situations and behaving erratically. She said she couldn't continue to see me because she was messed up and didn't want to put that on me, even though I expressly said to her uh, that I could take things at whatever pace she felt comfortable with. But it was more than that. Lacey had discovered that her ex-husband met the clinical definition of a sociopath. Weird. Uh, What really pushed her over the edge was reading all the traits of women who fall for people like this and bring the problem onto themselves. She was certain there were several things terribly wrong with her, and tonight she had spiraled into contemplating suicide. So now Mark begs her not to do anything she can't undo. He wants to go over to her, but she doesn't want uh, him to come over. He also doesn't want Jess to find out. So then Mark, the man who had killed somebody just a few days before, calls the police. Tells the cops his friend is contemplating suicide. Then when he gets off the phone, he tells Tracy that he had just called 911. She replies he was being ridiculous, said he was adding to her stress and they get into a huge fight. The following morning, October 15th, Mark wakes up to an email from Tracy who now apologizes for causing him alarm the night before. So now they're not fighting at the moment, but Mark's day will not be stress-free. He still needs to dispose of Johnny's body. So he gets up while it's still dark out, drives over to a bridge uh, over a river near the freeway and it quickly proves impractical to dump the body here. There's not a shoulder to park his car on and he can't stop without turning his hazard lights on. So weird that an unemployed criminal mastermind with so much free time on his hands, since he only has a fake ass job who fucking grew up in Edmonton, would have no idea where to find a body disposal site. He had so much time to find a place and he does not. He keeps driving. He soon spots a path down to a dock along the river, but decides it would be impractical to carry several bags down a steep rocky path in the dark. Again, he's born and raised here. He has no clue where to take this body, some Dexter. Now it's starting to get light out and the first commuters are on the road. So Mark, uh, he's stumped, he doesn't know what to do. Then he thinks, well, maybe, maybe I can hide the body in the sewer. And he now heads to a suburb east of Edmonton and eventually does find an uncovered manhole and then just throws the bags down the manhole and speeds off. Good thing no one who works for the city or county will ever check a manhole. Good thing once you put something down into a manhole, it disappears forever. Uh, Back at the garage, Mark burns his cleaning supplies. Some other evidence, instead of just throwing it all away in one of the many dumpsters around the city. That would be too easy. And he doesn't, you know, burn all of it. Uh, Right about now, unbeknownst to criminal mastermind, Mark Bitchell-Twitchell, late in the evening of Friday, October 17th, exactly a week after Johnny's murder date, police do agree to look for Johnny Altinger. They agree to investigate after Dale Smith and two other friends of Johnny's had broken into Johnny's condo and found his passport. That is clear proof that Johnny had definitely not gone on an unplanned international vacation. A patrolman then follows the directions to the date he'd went on the previous Friday, details Johnny had sent to Dale, which led, of course, to Mark's detached garage. Later, police will investigate the condo and they'll find uh, nothing amiss at Johnny's condo, no signs of forced entry, no bloodstains, but an empty spot on Johnny's desk where a printer would normally be. Weird, someone seems to have uh, been in there. The same day, Mark calls up his friend Joss, tells him about a guy he'd run into at a gas station who was leaving town with a rich sugar mama and wanted to sell his car, a Mazda, Johnny's car, for whatever Mark happened to have on him. Mark said he paid 40 bucks for it, uh, but decided to sell it because he couldn't drive a stick. Asked Joss to drive this fucking, you know, evidence over to St. Albert and Joss agrees. Joss, how could you be so, (laughs) Uh, how could you buy that nonsensical story? That nonsensical story, sorry. I'll address that ridiculous story about buying the car here in a second. On the night of uh, Saturday, October 18th, Mark's cell phone rings as he sits home with Jess and the baby. To his surprise, it's a cop on the other end. The officer wants to know if Mark had was renting a garage, if he'd been there recently, if he saw a man there on the evening of October 10th or knew anything about the woman the man was supposedly meeting. Mark says, I don't know anything. says, I haven't been there since before the 10th. The officer then asked him to come down to the garage, excuse me, make sure everything is in order. At the garage, the officers look around while Mark signs a witness statement. The officers then ask if he can see Mark's credit cards to check them against some receipts they had found. When the numbers match, the officers discovered that Mark had been in the garage as recently as a few days ago. So now they've caught him lying. About not having been there since October tenth, he immediately becomes a prime suspect in Johnny's disappearance. Formal questioning will start the next day. Uh, a few days later, October nineteenth, Mark says he discovered that his front door was unlocked and claimed he and his wife would never have forgotten to lock the door. He's troubled by this. Uh, you know, he didn't see anything amiss inside, but someone's messing with him. Then Mark said that back on October fifteenth, he was going to Home Depot for some cleaning supplies when he got pulled over. Uh, you know, when he pulled over for gas, and then a man came up to him at the gas station, knocked on his window, according to Mark. The guy said he had just met a wealthy girl who was going to take him on vacation and he asked if Mark wanted to buy his car. So this idiot doubles down on the shitty, not believable lie about Johnny meeting a woman who right away takes him on vacation. Clearly he doesn't know that Johnny's passport has been found in his apartment. It does not look good for him. Mark tells police, he told the guy that he didn't have enough money for the car. The guy asked him how much was in his wallet. Mark had $40 and the guy just sold it to him on the spot. This has never happened in the history of Canada and modern cars. No one has ever met a lady in Canada who a day after meeting them wants to take them on a two month vacation to the Caribbean. And then they take their car to a random gas station, approach one dude, and just take whatever happens to be in that guy's wallet for the car that they could have just left fucking anywhere else if they just cared so little about it. Now, of course, Mark would tell the police this, his scripts suck. So do his lies. He's just not a good storyteller. Mark says the guy whose name he claimed was also Mark, then drove the car to his rented garage and left it there. What the fuck? The, imagined version, uh, the imaginary version of Johnny is now going through a lot of trouble for 40 bucks and also calling himself Mark for some reason. Mark's greatest weakness, it seems, is that he's just not nearly as smart as he thinks he is. He thinks everyone around him is so stupid, but like 99% of the time, they're smarter than him. And it just, it just backfires. Uh, the police have to know that Mark is unbelievably, unbelievably full of shit. He proceeds to tell investigators that after buying this car, then he notices that the car is a stick shift. Mark can't drive a stick shift, so he asks his friend Joss, Parked the car at his parents' house a few blocks away. (laughs) The police now are convinced that Mark has done something to Johnny. They're already starting to think he probably murdered him. Bitchel's ship is sinking fast. One of the police officers now asked Mark to follow him in his car to police headquarters. Meanwhile, a forensics team is dispatched to Joss's house to investigate the Mazda. When the police get there, Joss tells police that he had helped Mark with a short film about a serial killer who targeted unfaithful husbands. He's reluctant to share any more possibly incriminating details about Mark because this idiot still thinks that Mark is going to make both of them millions. This fucking dynamic duo. They're like Batman and Robin if the dynamic duo collectively had the IQ of a fucking donkey. Joss had a lot of emotional incentive to think uh, Mark's movies were going to make him a lot of money, right? He had talked to his family and had given $30,000 to him. Uh, back at the police station now, Mark spends two hours writing a detailed statement. In it, of course, he makes himself look guiltier. He now writes that he'd come home to find the padlock on his garage changed. Then, inside... Mark discovered that someone had used duct tape, garbage bags and paper towels and burned something in an oil drum. I don't know what, so weird. Someone broke into my garage to make it into a murder room because that happens. Murderers break into other people's places and change their locks and then dispose of bodies there. (laughs) What? How did this guy convince like anyone to marry him or date him or work on any project with him? How did he get a degree in anything? How is he still not just living with his parents at this point in his life? Parents who continually fantasize about him never being born. Part of his statement read, it seems that whoever broke into my car on the 8th used all of the information they stole to use my location and personal property for who knows what. Uh, I'm alarmed that unknown persons now know where I live and may enter, be entering my premises that I'm supposed to be in control of. I don't know if the person who sold me the car is involved, but looking back, it certainly feels that way. And I have to wonder if I'm being targeted. Or if it's all a nasty coincidence. Dun, dun, dun. Holy shit, you guys. What if Johnny murdered Jen? What if Johnny saw me at the gas station, thought there's a guy who I bet has a garage I could trick him into letting me access so I could use it to chop up the body of a woman I just murdered before I flee the country? Oh man, I'm going to probably have to write this into an awesome creative project. Police, of course, not fooled by any of this. They just keep uh, Mark talking, hoping he'll eventually say something that they can use to concretely charge him with murder. Uh, That night, they interview Mark further, who uh, he now tells them all about his film career and his obsession with Star Wars. He says he just dropped off a custom cod piece he'd made for a Darth Vader costume at the post office. By the time they wrapped up their first talk, it was nearly four in the morning on Monday, October 20th, 2008. Those poor officers. They had just listened to Mark talk about his films and costumes for several hours, many hours. I'm surprised they weren't put on mandatory suicide watch. At four in the morning, the police tell Mark directly they're certain he's involved in the disappearance of Johnny Altinger. They tell him not in these exact words, but that his story is really stupid. Mark tries to deny it, saying he doesn't understand why they would think that. You know, he denies that he's lying. Then he literally curls up <laughs> into a fetal position. Ah, uh, as the police list numerous reasons why he's a suspect. And he stammers and whimpers. He, cr- he curls up into a ball and cries. Just when I thought he couldn't get less likable. Around six in the morning, he asks for a lawyer. Uh, while Mark walks down the hall, chatting on his cell phone, hiring a lawyer, investigators leave him at the station, rush to the house Mark shared with Jess and baby Chloe. They ask for his computer. Jess tells him that Mark kept his computer gear in the basement. At this point, investigators think there's a small chance Johnny might be alive and being held somewhere for ransom. They try to act fast to find out where he disappeared to, even if they're fairly certain he'd been murdered. murdered. They also hope they can find clues on Mark's computer that will reveal why he would just kill a random man. They also start to wonder if Mark might've been making snuff films at that garage. So they start to interview his recent cast and crew. And these people tell them that Mark has been obsessed with Dexter. They also tell investigators that Mark had met Jess through the dating online or site plentyoffish.com, same website where Johnny had met his own date before disappearing. Suspicious. Uh, the forensics team does an investigation of Mark's car on October 21st, 2008. The Pontiac Grand Am, Grand Am had seen better days. Front bumper is cracked, splintered on one side, deep gashes on the other. The rear bumper crushed on the driver's side. Just below the spoiler, the tailpipe uh, had been punctured. Uh, or tail light, excuse me, if had been punctured a piece of clear plastic tape was covering a huge hole. <laughs> Mark is driving the car of a man who has lied about having a job for quite some time now. They find a receipt in this car for the movies, a duffel bag, an unpaid speeding ticket, a roll of black hockey tape, a business card that reveals his film company is called Express Entertainment, and its motto is independent film at its finest. I can think of some better mottos for Express Entertainment. The best unfinished projects you'll never see. Express Entertainment, borrowed ideas, poorly executed. Express Entertainment, tired of watching movies? No problem. We don't make any. Uh, Investigators also spot a key in the cup holder. Cressing the bottom of the keychain makes another vehicle in the impound lot beep. Johnny Altinger's red Mazda parked nearby. They also find neon yellow post-it notes. This is my favorite thing of the whole episode. (laughs) On one of the fucking post-it notes he had left in his car. For over a week after fucking killing this guy, there is a fucking map that leads from Mark's house to Johnny's apartment. He left this note. He could have thrown it away at so many points. And there was even more incriminating notes. (laughs) One read, destroy wallet contents. And another read, kill room clean sweep. Jesus. Most embarrassing note maybe, fuck Tracy Senseless. I just had these fucking notes all over his car. We've covered some killers who are crazier than this guy, like Richard Chase, Vampire of Sacramento. Um, Some who are more blatantly mentally ill, like, you know, uh, Ed Gein, and also, uh, obviously, the Vampire of Sacramento. Uh, We've covered killers who are more, you know, uh, they're less as able intellectually, like Carl Denke. Not sure we've covered a killer before who just tried to cover their tracks, but did this bad of a job of it. Behind the driver's seat is a copy of Dearly Devoted Dexter, one of Dexter's novels, uh, a receipt for a hockey mask. Uh, How lazy is this guy? How how do you not throw away receipts for items used in a murder? And worse, how do you just not throw away a post-it note reminder to clean up your kill room? Also, who needs to write any of this down? Who is so forgetful? They're worried they will not remember to clean up a kill room. (laughs) Like What do these guys' to-do lists look like? Okay, let's get tomorrow's uh, to-do list knocked out. Uh, Number one wake up. Number two, pee and poop if needed, of course. Wipe afterwards if needed. Number three, brush teeth, shower, comb hair, put on deodorant. Number four, get dressed. Number five, eat breakfast. Number six, try to poop if not already pooped. Wipe afterwards. Number seven, bring wallet, phone, car keys outside. Open and shut front door to leave dwelling. In that order, lock closed door after leaving dwelling. Number eight, put car key in ignition after entering car, not before. Turn key clockwise to start. Go over driving notes before driving to make sure I know what pedals to push. Number nine, use phone to call big time Hollywood execs to tell them how much money they can make financing my genius projects. Number 10, rest of day, TBD, maybe kill someone. Maybe spend time with wife and kid. Maybe fuck Tracy senseless. Maybe give her romance novel level orgasms. Uh, In the front of Mark's car was the most startling discovery of all. A backpack with a military blade inside. A weapon typically only used by combat Marines. The rubber-handled 7-inch carbon steel blade was in a black leather holster attached to a belt and had blood on it. He didn't even clean his fucking murder weapon. They also find another computer. A Toshiba laptop covered in Spider-Man stickers. On Wednesday, October 22nd, the police start their investigation in Mitchell's house. Jesse and Chloe had gone to stay with Jess's mom. Mark has chosen to stay with his parents. In Mark's basement, they search his desk, which is cluttered with empty cans of energy drinks and juice bottles. A half-eaten bowl of noodles sits by the keyboard. Among Mark's computer desk shelves are burned copies of all 12 episodes of the second season of Dexter. His desk stretched out along the basement wall to an adjoining sewing table. that was uh, buried by a collection of fabric, string, and costumes. A Star Wars alien mask with three eyes sat in the corner. Next to a black Jedi baseball cap, detectives noticed a street hockey mask. It had been painted black with three stripes of gold, shaped to form a vicious animal claw, and the bottom of the mask had been cut away. None of this is the uh, he for sure killed Johnny clue they were looking for, though. Luckily, the digital forensics team finds just that. They finish a sweep of Mark's computer and find a document in the trash labeled SK Confessions, Serial Killer Confessions. They could not believe their luck. They were literally blown away by how stupid this guy was. The document details exactly how Twitchell had lured and killed Johnny Altinger. The document reveals a kill room had been chosen, a double door detached garage with a dirt driveway in the south end of the city. The diary details Mark's disguise, which had just been recovered at the house, the black hockey mask, the forehead painted with the gold streaks. The mask Mark wrote served the double purpose of facial protection and identity shield to give the victim a false sense of security and thinking they would be let go. Then he picked out his kill knife from a military surplus store and got to work. The knife they had just fucking found with Johnny's blood on it. Mark then wrote, the trap was se- <laughs> The trap was set. Now it was time to bait the hook. My kill room was perfectly prepped. Plastic sheeting taped together around my table. Large green cloth screwed into the drywall ceiling. They just give all the details. He just gives all the details there. Talks about the stun baton, everything. Police ready themselves to hear about the murder, but SK Confessions abruptly digresses to a different event for a bit. Another attack on October 3rd. Now they understood that the person they were dealing with had tried to attack someone before, right? Jill, right? that guy we met earlier. Meaning that whatever happened uh, with Johnny wasn't just a fight that got out of control. It was a premeditated plan. And, and I say that uh, fight that got out of control because at some point he tells the police that, uh, he will later tell the police that, you know, this was a fight that got out of control. I'll explain that in a bit too. It's, it's so ridiculous. O- October 23rd, 2008, Mark sends out this email to his friends and former film crew, urging them to not talk to the police like an innocent person does. One of the worst people on the planet at covering their tracks writes, gentlemen, first off, I want to offer my deepest apologies if your lives have been disrupted in any way by what's been going on lately. I wish I could talk to you about it and maybe one day in the future, that will be possible. But for now, I have to recommend that everyone stop talking to the police or not to start if you haven't already. If you aren't sure what I'm referring to, you will be soon. You have all... You all have a right to silence and you should exercise that right. I'm sure no one in this group carries guilt, so you have nothing to fear, but I've been screwed around and I don't appreciate it. So it's time to stop this and make them do their own jobs. I'm serious. The time for dry, sarcastic humor and flaky jokes is over. This is no prank. Sometimes what we see on TV is in fact a true representation of how they work. Sometimes they do lie and make things up in order to get people to say things they otherwise, not just, uh, otherwise would not just so they can have an answer for the media. I don't think this was the case, or I didn't think this was the case until this week when I was proven otherwise. So please, if they ask you questions, just tell them that you don't know anything. And if they want you to come in for a statement, kindly refuse. (laughs) I highly doubt anybody has given them the slightest provocation to get arrested so nothing will happen to you if you tell them to pound salt and this will go away faster. Thanks for your cooperation. I'll keep you posted. He still thinks he's trying, he's going to outsmart him. Oh my God, if I'm his friend reading this, I now think he's 100% guilty. Mark also logs on to Johnny's Facebook page, adds a friend, logs out, still trying to keep up the ruse that Johnny's just away on vacation, sipping Mai Tais, fucking on the beach, a ruse that no one's buying. Uh, Friday, October 24th, his forensics team arrives at the garage now. Once inside, they discover that the garage is fairly empty, at least it appears to be. The floor is swept and dry, but a bunch of boxes have been pushed up against the side walls. And inside these boxes and on some shelves on the walls, they find a pair of black handcuffs. <laughs> uh, they find a key from Mark's home office that opens a lock, locked case in the garage. And inside that they find a gas powered BB gun and a stun gun. They find an oil drum next to a metal table, a drum that had been recently used to bunch of, you know, burn a bunch of shit, you know, like Johnny's body. They find an extensive inventory of cleaning supplies towards the back. They make their most important discovery, two long metal pipes. The end of one of the pipes or yeah, the end of one of the pipes is charred black. Cause sometimes a guy likes to burn a pipe for no reason. And the second pipe had been wrapped in black hockey tape and it was stained red, like blood red, right? There's still blood on the pipe. Inside the mouth of the pipe, resting just inside the tip is a collection of small bits, no bigger than grains of rice. They will later determine these are bone fragments and bits of fat and skin from Johnny. Like he did not fucking clean the pipe he used to hit this guy with. The investigation was stretched into its second week now. Police are hesitant to pull the trigger though, still on arresting uh, Mark. They want even more evidence. They want to be 100% sure that SK Confessions is uh, not fictional. Uh, there's more than 300 specific facts to cross-examine uh, cross in this, cross-reference. They want to make sure no procedural errors will end up being uh, able to be used by Mark later at his trial. The police also confused in regards to what had led to Johnny meeting up with Mark. They still thought that a businessman and father just deciding to become a serial killer didn't make any sense. So now they try some less-than-forensic experiments. As an experiment, one officer signs up for plentyoffish.com, designs a few fake profiles of his own. The first fake profile is looking for romance. The second is uh, a woman looking for a casual, no strings attached, a little rendezvous. The officer would later state that the results were markedly different. <laughs> of course they were. Uh, no one had contacted the relationship seeker, but the woman wanting casual sex had her profile viewed nearly four times uh, more often and received more than 50 instant messages requests. So almost no one in contact with the relationship seeker. Uh, they were not blown away by these results. What? There's a lot of guys out there looking for a lady who just wants to fuck and never ask them to meet her parents or go shopping with her? That's crazy. Meanwhile, Mark is uh, still making costumes. He'd been staying with his parents. Police surveillance was on him 24 seven. Make sure he doesn't flee. He rarely left their house. He stayed busy building an Iron Man costume. Halloween was coming up and he had his eyes on a big costume prize again. Not kidding. He still thinks he's going to get away with everything and win a bunch of money and, with an Iron Man costume. I'll be forgiven. Then suddenly a bright spot appears on the horizon for Mark. A potential new investor had seen his website, emailed him, asking about a Star Wars fan film, and now he could help. And And how he could help. Mark tells him about day players and his efforts to raise money for that film. And the businessman writes back, you certainly got my attention. I have a busy week coming up, but I might be able to open up a slot for a meeting. Is this really happening? A day later, the potential new investor emails again with more good news. He wants to meet Mark and will be bringing an interested friend with deep pockets. What? Two potential investors? Mark suggests they meet quickly, even on the weekend if possible. I'm free all day Saturday, all day Sunday, he writes. Just let me know. They confirm their plans to meet Friday, October 31st, 2008. I think that once he sees the data in black and white, he will be just as excited as I am, the businessman wrote about his rich friend. Mark could not wait. It seemed too good, too good to be true. And then October 31st, Halloween, the day of Mark's big meeting, he gets up, he puts uh, together a list of things to do, writes more stupid stickers, I'm sure. Uh, don't kill anyone today. Not the right time uh work on future disappearance story better than guy suddenly heading off to caribbean with girl he just met and selling car to a random guy at gas station for 40 bucks uh remember to throw away to do list after next murder he puts his final touches on the iron man suit puts the name of the interested businessman uh the interested businessman in, in his contacts on his phone grabs two tickets to the halloween con- costume contest and then he gets dressed heads out he has a brisk 20 minute walk ahead of him to reach the coffee shop coffee shop on time there's going to be this big meeting as he crosses the street, a white van intercepts him, skids to a stop. The van's doors fly open. A group of police officers in tactical gear swarm him, yelling at him to get on the ground. No! He's so close to his huge film career taking off! My meeting! Not my meeting! There was no meeting. The businessman who is interested in investing in Mark's movies was part of a sting operation to arrest him. An officer in the hate crimes unit had orchestrated the entire week-long conversation with him. Why do all this instead of just go arrest him at his parents' house? I have no idea and I don't care. I just fucking love it. I want to believe they did this just to fuck with him. I'm sure there was a reason that wasn't explained in the sources, but it's great. Mark is cuffed, placed under arrest for first-degree murder. He's brought to the police station where he's processed, fingerprinted, interrogated again. Unbeknownst to him, his ex, Tracy, is being interrogated just a few doors down uh, the hall. She is shown a copy of SK Confessions And in reading Bitchell's descriptions of their big romantic night, she immediately tells detectives that Mark is a conceited asshole that she'd grown to hate. (laughs) His biggest fan quickly turns away. Uh, Meanwhile, back at Mark's parents' house, forensics experts are combing through the property for evidence. Mark's parents and sisters stand nearby. They're very cooperative. Uh, They actually didn't seem that upset. And at one point, Mark's father turned to the investigators and actually said, Officer, can I offer you some advice? Have a vasectomy. Holy shit, his fucking dad hates him too. Uh, He's so unlikable. Mark would be interrogated all of November 1st. Instead of the confident person who had seemed troubled as he gave police the fake story about Johnny selling his car a few weeks earlier, now he's near silent. Refuses to answer almost all their questions or even make eye contact. They try everything, cooperating with him, not cooperating with him, driving him around in the hopes that he confess where he dumped the body. There's that, again, that video online that's great of that. He will not confess. Uh, The case is now hitting the media. Many of Mark's friends and acquaintances are finding out about the murder on TV. Two weeks later, Jess files for divorce. Mid-November, she demands full custody of Chloe, wants a restraining order against Mark. She wastes zero time. Everyone is quickly expressing zero love for this douche. Also, interesting that Mark did not murder until after he and Jess had Chloe, right? Think about that. He did not kill until he became a dad. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. Also, where was my dad in October of 2008? Uh, You know, he was living uh, within a day's drive of Calgary in McCall, Idaho, Other than that, I don't don't know anything. Is Mark Twitchell taking the fall from my dad? I don't think so, so much evidence against him, but did my dad train Mark how to kill, how to try to become a serial killer? Maybe. Was the Showtime series Dexter partly inspired by, or maybe even written by my dad? I'm not sure, he hasn't talked about it. I wish I knew where that sneaky son of a bitch was right now. I'd feel safer if I did, you get it. Anyway, as his divorce goes through, Mark is still in jail at the Edmonton Remand Center, still not talking after being shipped from floor to floor finally resides in room 11, cell block 3D, a floor design for long-term inmates. He hates who he's surrounded by now. He writes later, uh, I have nothing in common with dope dealers, robbers, and crackheads. Low brow sensory deprivation tank. Ah, oh, this poor genius. As inmate 236702, he now spends most of his time in his cell, scribbling on his notepad, working on future scripts. He just will not quit. Using toothpaste, he also tacks up a Dexter poster. Probably not a good look. Meanwhile, investigators still trying to find Johnny's body. They find a description about the sewer body disposal and SK Confessions, but not the exact location. And it's hard uh, to find it. There's just a lot of sewer. Uh, Then on June 3rd, 2010, Mark and his lawyer, Charles Davison, his second lawyer actually, after firing his first one, they have a meeting with investigators. This is so weird. Mark requests this meeting. He stipulates the meeting has to be secret. No press, no media. No Detective Clark as well. Detective Clark was an investigator he'd grown to hate. And at this meeting, Mark doesn't say anything to investigators. He just slides them a printout of a Google map search. Below the map of Northern Edmonton are a few words scrawled in blue ink. Location of John Altinger's remains. Twitchell signed, dated the sheet of paper, provided the three-sentence description of the exact location. On the map, he had drawn in an alley north of downtown, marked a sewer great site with a red circle, and that was it. Meeting over. What the shit? Why did he do this? He never says. He's never revealed why he did that. Maybe he thought it would make for a cool scene in a future movie, right? When a man being held on suspicion of murder then gives the police the last piece of evidence they need to convict him of murder without actually saying he murdered someone. Maybe he'd started watching Saw movies. And this was just some sort of, you know, bad jigsaw imitation. Would you like to play a game? I have given you a map with the location of a body of a man. I may have murdered somewhere on the map. If you can find the body, I go to prison for the most, for the rest of my life. If you cannot find the body, I am free to go and kill again. Good luck. Oh, oh, oh fuck. Oh God. I circled the location of the body. Didn't I? God damn it. That, okay. That sucks. That makes it really easy for you to win this game. Also, I just said I'd kill again, which kind of implies that I've already killed. God damn it. Uh, I'm not good at puzzles. Uh, forensics teams would make several trips into the labeled manhole before discovering a human torso. Subsequent trips would reveal a pelvis bone, kneecap, intact tooth, teeth fragments, uh, buckets of mud, gravel, wood, metal, plastic, smaller bones, uh, all in all, they had about half of a decompos- decomposing skeleton, uh, the limbs, the skull were missing, probably flushed down the sewer farther, uh, during like a heavy rainstorm and DNA evidence will confirm that these remains are Johnny's remains. And with that, the police investigation will end. Now let's skip ahead to the trial. Uh, Mark will enter a not guilty plea on March 16th, 2011. Uh-huh. He fucking gives location of the body to detectives and pleads not guilty very little of what this guy does makes sense. Oh, now I keep thinking about his dad wishing he'd had a vasectomy before it created Mark. Over the course of the trial, six men, six women on the jury hear from forensic officers who testified about the hundreds of pieces of evidence they seized from Mark's St. Albert home, the garage he rented in South Edmonton, uh, Twitchell's parents' residence, Altucher's, uh condominium. It should come as, uh, shouldn't come as a surprise that SK Confessions is the centerpiece of the evidence against him. Twitchell's main defense was that SK Confessions was fictional and that the murder weapons and other evidence had simply been props for his film that happened to be have actually been used in a real murder. His lawyer, Charles Davison, argued that Mark had changed parts of the document to make a better story. A story about an accidental killing would not have fit the genre Mark was trying to perfect, he claimed. And that's how they said Johnny died, accidentally. And how did this accident happen? He will reveal this soon. It is the cornerstone of this amazing defense strategy. Uh, during the trial, prosecutors will call 46 witnesses to prove SK confessions is true save for some very minor discrepancies, probably about the orgasms Tracy had. At one point, Twitchell writes about getting a speeding ticket days after Altinger is killed. The Crown called a sheriff to testify he had written Twitch- Twitchell a ticket on October 13th. Everything is matching up, including the story about the attempted murder before Johnny's murder. Two and a half years after his attack, Jill Tetro tells the court he had come to Twitchell's rented garage, tells that whole thing about the online dating site, getting catfished, all of it. Attacked. Mark tells the court he didn't attack Tetro. Yes, that's true, but not to hurt him. He said the attack was to help create an online urban legend for a movie and book project. It never ends with this guy's shitty, not even remotely believable eyes. He was just pranking him for an online legend. Come on, you get it. Uh, similarly, Twitchell said that a game proce- a game processing kit found in his garage, which is a prop for the movies, which he claimed were driven by his, quote, savant power. What is Savant power. It is Mark's incredible ability to create a screenplay masterpiece that sometimes leads him to do crazy things, like attack someone to create an urban legend to create buzz for a book and film project. That's actually what he tells the court. And then Crown Prosecutor uh, Avril Inglis says while cross examining Mark, so because of your savant inspiration for your project, you just happen to have all the tools lying around to dismember an actual body? And then Mark replies, you can paint it as any kind of coincidence you want. Uh, and then there's the matter of Johnny's remains. Why, if it was all a hoax, did Mark know where the remains were? Twitchell on the witness stand makes a startling admission now. He did kill Johnny Altinger, but it wasn't what the prosecution thought. Here we fucking go. Here's where he walks out of court, a free man hoisted onto the shoulders of adoring Star Wars fans who break out into cheer, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow. He's going to make millions on his movies. It wasn't murder, Mark said. It was another prank. Come on. He was pulling a prank on Johnny, same kind of prank he tried to pull on Jill. One of these fun pranks where you lure a man inside of a windowless garage after days of flirtatious catfishing, then brutally attack them, making them think they're going to die. That's the fun prank part in case you don't know how pranks work. And then you let them, you know, go create an urban legend that you're working on to help launch a book that you'll make millions off of. There's a fine line between genius and insanity and Mark Mitchell will be the first to admit he walks it. And sometimes he teeters. During this prank, Johnny, for some reason, got angry that a stranger was attacking him. Maybe he was also a prankster. Maybe this is like a double prank gone wrong. And then Johnny attacked Mark back. And Mark is like, what the fuck? And he has to act in self-defense. I'm just supposed to attack you for a little bit. and You're supposed to run off. But instead he attacks back. And that's why he has to kill him. And I fucking shit you not. This is Mark's defense. My God. (laughs) Uh, After both sides have presented their cases. There was an opportunity for Mark and the victim's family members to speak. Mark chose not to speak to Johnny's family when given the chance to address the court. He pauses for several seconds when asked and then says, I'll pass on that because he's very likable. Johnny Altinger's mother uh, tells the court in a victim impact statement that she still calls her son sometimes on his cell phone two and a half years after Mark has killed him just to hear his voice message. She'd also say, people have asked me if I wish there was still the death penalty. My answer is no. My wish is for the perpetrator of this unforgivable and horrific act to reflect on his actions and die a slow death every day of his life. Nice. On, on April 12, 2011, the jury deliberated five hours before deciding Mark Twitchell was guilty of first degree murder. I don't know how it didn't take him just five minutes. Uh, after nearly four weeks of testimony for more than 20 witnesses and in excess of a hundred exhibits entered into evidence, it was over. I'm shocked. Again, it just took them that long. Uh, Altinger's family gasped, cried after hearing the verdict and they smiled. Mark was sentenced to life in prison. He will not be eligible for parole until 25 years of a sentence have passed. So that dumb fuck uh, will sit in his cell until at least 2036, when he'll be 57, and I doubt he will get parole, not when the parole board reads the SK Confessions doc, he wrote. Since he was given the max sentence, a trial for his attempted murder of Gilles Tetro was deemed unnecessary. On May 9th, 2011, Twitchell filed a handwritten notice for appeal, which blamed media attention on his trial for influencing the jury. His appeal is fucking thrown in the trash can. Uh, <laughs> Uh, In 2013, it was reported that Mark acquired a flat screen TV and cable package while in maximum security prison. How nice. And guess what he did with that as soon as possible. He watched all the episodes of Dexter he had missed due to incarceration and then started watching reruns. Uh, The next update on Mark comes in 2017 when a Canadian news outlet reports that he is using a dating site. He's still fucking using dating sites, one for inmates now. Uh, The then 38-year-old wrote on CanadianInmateConnect.com. I'm looking for an interesting, intelligent, open-minded, delightfully imperfect woman to relate to and share amusing observations with, as well as potentially a long weekend every few months if it gets there naturally. Not sure if anyone's taken him up on that yet. Fucked up that someone could. I hate this. In Canada, all inmates in federal correctional, correctional facilities, excuse me, with the exception of those on disciplinary restrictions or those deemed at risk for family violence are permitted private family visits of up to 72 hours duration once every two months. Someone could stay in his cell with him for 72 hours, watch Dexter, uh, fuck his brains out, uh, you know, every two months. I I hope he takes his dad's advice and gets a vasectomy before this happens. How gross he's given that possibility. Uh, They will have to marry him first, but still. Mark is now 42 years old and furious that he's not allowed to work in prison on editing and then selling his awesome Star Wars fan movie, a project he still thinks will make him millions. (laughs) Mark has recently been trying to get this project completed from prison. He wants footage returned to him. It was seized when he was arrested. Uh, he wants to edit it and publicly release it. Uh, he has written in prison letters. All the footage is sheer gold. <laughs> Direct quote. Way too many amazing people gave so much of themselves to make that film magic. I will see it completed if it is literally the last thing I do. Ah, good for you. Still no one will watch it, you fucking piece of shit. Uh, so delusional, let's jump out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. you made it back. Barely. The Dexter killer has been sucked. What a strange and disturbing story. October 10th, 2008, an innocent 38-year-old man named Johnny Altinger would arrive at a garage expecting to have an intimate encounter with a woman named Jen he'd met on plentyoffish.com. And then after returning to the garage twice, Bitchel attacked Johnny with a pipe and a knife, two weapons he didn't even bother to clean up afterward, uh, murdered him, spent the following days dismembering his body, cleaning up evidence. Kind of. He left so much evidence. Like like a fucking sticky note, reminding himself to clean his kill room. Investigators would find bloody pipes, Mark's bloodstained clothes, a written-out confession, SK Confessions. This idiot thought he was a genius. SK Confessions become the center of his murder trial in which he uh, tried to claim that it was all fictional and that he killed Johnny after a prank had gone wrong. It's just a little silly, lure someone to a garage filled with weapons to be assaulted prank. Come on. People don't know how to have fun anymore. Uh, the jury didn't buy any of this because it's super dumb and they sentenced him to life with, uh, uh, you know, the possibility of parole after 25 years, which is a bummer. He should have no possibility of parole. Will he go free in 2036? I doubt it. Uh, <laughs> this guy, he's still in prison, still working on, uh, you know, trying to get his projects finally done, thinks they're gold, still openly watches Dexter. He's too crazy to ever be released. Uh, I, I, cause I, I'm sure he's dumb enough to think he would be able to get away with more crimes once he got out. Okay. Let's look a few more, few more times back at this, at this weirdo in today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, Mark Twitchell murdered Johnny Altinger October 10th, 2008, after luring him to a rented garage by pretending to be a woman on plentyoffish.com. This came only a week after an attempted attack on a different man, Gilles Tetro. Gilles managed to get away, and though he didn't report his attack to the police at the time, his testimony later in Twitchell's trial would be an important... Uh, piece of evidence as far as proving that S.K. Confessions was a real account of Mark's life and not fictional. Number two, Mark Twitchell wrote about his plans and the murder in a document called S.K. Confessions that police found on his laptop, detailed what he would tell police if he was caught, detailed his extramarital uh, sexual relationship with ex-girlfriend Tracy, and overall just pretty much handed police every single detail of his crimes they would possibly want on a silver platter. Number three, Mark Twitchell was obsessed with Dexter. He modeled his kill room and methods off of Dexter's. Uh, which made his case create a big splash in the media. His love of anti-heroes did not start there. Twitchell was also a huge fan of Anakin Skywalker, a.k.a. Darth Vader. Number four, Mark Twitchell spent thousands of dollars of his money and about $60,000 of others uh, filming a Star Wars prequel fan fiction movie called Secrets of the Rebellion and that shitty little promo, Day Players. Uh, the Star Wars was a uh, you know, fan fiction movie was never finished. Thanks to Canadian authorities, it probably never will be. Uh, number 5 new info randomly one of murder victim Johnny Altinger's most treasured possessions was a copy of the movie What the Bleep Do We Know? Do you remember when we mentioned that very little known movie on a previous episode? We played a clip actually. It was co-written, co-directed by Mark Vicente who would later become deeply involved in the Nexium cult. Keith Raniere's now defunct cult. Weird little time suck connection there. Just a bit more weirdness to add to this oh so strange story. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Mark Twitchell Bitchell has been sucked. Mark, again, I hope you're listening. I know you can listen to this stuff in your prison cell. Good luck trying to finish your shitty movies. I, you know what? On further thought, I actually hope the police do let you finish your movie just so you can release it uh, and then have the internet fucking destroyed. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck every week. Uh, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Sophie the Fact Sorceress Evans, running point on this week's research. Uh, Bid Elixir for continuously refining the TimeSug app, Logan Art Warlock Keith running badmagicmerch.com, being the visual artist for all things bad magic, uh, working on socials with Liz the Enchantress Hernandez. About time she got a, a new nickname. I forgot that she had the nickname Countess for a while, actually. It, it never stuck. Liz uh, runs our Cultly Curious Facebook private page, currently Cultly Curious 2, along with her wonderful All Seen Eyes moderators. Uh, Thank you all for helping curate an online community that means a lot to so many. Thanks also to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad running Discord. You can link to the TimeSuck Discord through the TimeSuck app. Uh, Let's get really goofy and weird next week and talk about clones. Yes, celebrity clone conspiracies is going to be our topic. Clone, clone, clone. Did you know that back in 2010, Disney had Miley Cyrus killed and dumped her remains in the California desert? Wake up. She wouldn't play along and do what she was told. So Roy Disney's undead homicidal corpse put her down. Uh, Miley Cyrus clone conspiracies give two different reasons for Miley being a clone. One is in the months before her accident, Miley leaked some nudes, smoked some uh, salvia and wrote in a song that she was hot. Gosh dang, to save its brand, to not let her destroy her wholesome image, Disney had her killed, which doesn't make sense because then she went on to do much more risque things. Another possibility- is that the then 17-year-old was killed for refusing to have sex with various high-level Disney execs, had to be killed to keep her quiet. Uh, Megan Fox, Beyonce, Britney Spears, are you seeing a pattern here? All clones, according to various people online with the IQ of Mark Twitchell. Not all clones, though, are young sex symbol ladies. Some clones have wieners, like Eminem. Mm -hmm. He was obviously cloned in 2005 after the Illuminati had him killed for refusing to join the Illuminati. And there have been other Murders, followed by clone productions. We're going to look into these claims. And we're also going to look into the real science of cloning and how far it has actually come. And next week's science and wackadoodle mashup. Uh, Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Going to start off light, since the last two messages today are pretty heavy. Uh, I fucked up a common name last week that I used to fuck up then stopped fucking up based on other people calling me out, then started fucking up again. Sweet sack, Sherry Cortez writes, dear master sucker and pleasure boy to the great god Nimrod and Luciferina. I have a bone to pick with you. In both last week's episodes of Scared to Death and this week's Time Suck, oh, in both last week's episode of, yeah, Scared to Death and this week's Time Suck, you kept pronouncing uh, Miguel as Miguel. The flipping you is flipping silent. Oh my heck. Every time you mispronounce it, my butthole clenched. And I had to stop myself from screaming at my phone and looking like a lunatic in my car. How do you manage to pronounce Eric Von Daniken's name correctly and yet screw up a very common Hispanic name so spectacularly? That is my only thing to add and I do love all your podcasts. Here to death is we dumb and of course time sucks. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Keep on sucking. Uh, thanks, Jerry. Fuck. Miguel. I wish I knew why that name keeps giving me problems right? I would also be annoyed if I were were you. That's like if I kept pronouncing Michael as Mikhail. My friend, have you heard of Mikhail Jordan? He was a great basket basket bow player. A great basket bow player. Uh, I'm glad you gave me a heads up. Hopefully I will get it right for a bit now. Now an old Time Suck joke reference from the Gary Ridgway Green River Killer Suck that just made me laugh. Funny Mama Meat Sack, Lena Wegman writes... (laughs) So my daughter was at Walgreens and I texted her to pick up some Mama Ridgway's clean wing. She actually looked for it. Then texted me back asking what it was. Later on, she just texted me, bruh, laugh my ass off. I fucking love you, Master Sucker Cummins. I just thought this might brighten up your day. Make you laugh as hard as it did me. Keep on sucking and hail Nimrod. Uh, I fucking love you, Lena. I love that she actually looked for a while for Mama Ridgway's clean wing at Walgreens. I wish she would have asked a clerk to help her. <laughs> and I, I I can just picture the eye roll is, ah, oh, bruh, Why? Uh, keep having fun with that kid of yours. And uh, our next to last update now, compassionate meetsack Andrea Levitt shares information about a young boy who sadly could use our help. She wrote back on August 5th, praise be master sucker. I know you guys are all about community outreach in Idaho and there was a five-year-old boy that has been missing in Fruitland for over a week now. Being a fellow Idahoan, I was wondering if you could boost this on the podcast to get the word out farther. Hail Nimrod, Bojangles, and Triple M. Thank you, Andrea. Yes, this poor kid's name is Michael Joseph Vaughn. Nickname Monkey. Went missing from the area near his home in Fruitland, Idaho, July 27th. The city of Fruitland has created a page on their website, fruitland.org, to help locate him. I have a link in the episode description. They have a photo taken of Michael just a month prior to the last time he was seen. When he went missing, he was wearing a light blue Minecraft T-shirt, dark blue or black boxer briefs, green with a green stripe, child size 11 blue flip-flops. Three foot seven inches tall, 50 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. If you know anything, email find at fruitland.org or call Fruitland's dispatch 208-642-6006. So hopefully he is found soon. That is yeah. Gut wrenching. Uh, last update an- another serious one. Super sack Hannah Chandler is the kind of friend we should all be lucky enough to have. She writes, Hey Dan, I know this is a long shot, but I was hoping you could give a very special shout out on the show. My friend, Nicole, is an amazing meat sack. She's a single mother, librarian, incredible poet, and author who just published her first book and officiated my husband and I's wedding. I had the absolute joy of nannying her daughter a few times a week. It has made me an infinitely better person. Now for the hard stuff. Nicole's son, Christian, has been missing for almost two years. She's done everything in her power to find him to no avail. I thought, given how many people all across the country Time Suck reaches, that it'd be worth a shot to send out a virtual Have You Seen Him on the Suck? As a parent, I'm sure you can imagine the absolute horror of not knowing where one of your kids is. I know I can't find him myself, but I cannot sit by and do nothing. And so I'm asking you to take two minutes and share his name, last location, and maybe a picture of him on socials. Let's use the suck for something good. Try to get this kid home. If this sounds like something you can help with, I can get you more info. Thanks for reading. And if you can't get this, no hard feelings. I know how busy you are. Thank you for everything you do. The suck help me keeps my own darkness at bay, Hannah. Hannah, first off, thanks for being such a fucking good friend to Nicole. Uh, sounds like she is an amazing meat sack. Sounds like you are as well. Uh, yes, we're going to post Christian's picks to socials in this episode, uh, or as this episode releases, I truly hope it helps. Uh, if it does, you better fucking let us know what a terrible thing for a parent to not know where their child is adult or not, or, or not. Uh, obviously I hope he's okay. Hope he's getting help for whatever demons he's been fighting, uh, to share some details. He's 24 years old now, Caucasian male, five foot eleven. 175 pounds when he was last seen at the city rescue mission in Oklahoma City, November 27, 2019. He has a Celtic knot tattooed on his back, dark curly brown hair, brown eyes, full name Christian Alexander Stoppel. If you have any info, please call the Oklahoma City Police Department, 405 231 2121. Or call the We Help the Missing tip line, 866 660 4025. Keep on sucking, Hannah. Keep on keeping that darkness at bay. And I hope we find them both, obviously. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. We also do Scared to Death and Is We Dumb every week. Please do not kill anyone this week because you think it'll help you write a better true crime story. Obviously, Mark Twitchell has proved it doesn't work that way. You can just listen to stories like this one instead and just keep on sucking. All right, time to check these profiles and plenty of fish. First one, Becky. I'm a doctor. I love deeply. I care about my friends and no messages. Okay. Let me check another one. Okay, we got Monica here. Okay, Monica is looking for adventure, a serious relationship. Nothing. Okay. Let me check this other one here. All right, we have uh, Rosa here. uh, Rosa just really wants to get to know someone deeply. No messages? Okay. See here. Uh, Tatiana, I want you to wreck this pussy. Oh, my God! 10,000 messages? Holy shit! I think I'm onto something! Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.